1: more info now.
5: Verse. This is it. Could happen here. A podcast entirely dedicated to the metaverse, um, which is the promise of the human future. Um, on with me, as always, is my co-host Mark Zuckerberg.
2: Um, hello. I, I, I don't. I don't know
5: how Mark Zuckerberg talks. I'm not sure how. I don't. Yeah, I don't
2: know, yeah, I don't know whose voice like. you were
5: doing. could just do a, like, but a I voice, it. It. I guess. But yeah. who knows? He sounds like nothing. Like no one. Uh, like the absence of a soul. He sounds anyway, like Garrison. The, the
6: noise when it's dial-up, that's, that's his point.
5: Yeah, <laughs> that's what's going on inside his head at any moment. <laughs> when he's not actively making the internet worse, it's just a dial tone in there. Awesome. Garrison, what are we talking yep. about
6: today? Well, yeah, we're going to be talking about the metaverse and how how it's different from what people talk about it as and yeah it's it's going to be it's it's going to it's going to touch on a variety of things split up into two parts um but first i would like to paint you a, a picture with words a word picture so you're a wictor a wicture, yeah you will mm-hmm. you're walking walking through your favorite grocery store there's you know carts passing by hor- hor- horrible music playing mm-hmm. it's the lighting is white and and like overexposed and underexposed at the same time it's 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 hard it's hard to see and this uh this like uh person who looks like an employee keeps keeps popping up and trying to take you to different sections of the store. you're trying to just ignore her. it's very annoying all you need to get is the stuff you have on a little list, and it's it's awful um eventually, you get so fed up with this whole experience that you take out uh, you go to where the wine bottles are you take them out and you arrange them into a giant penis on the floor because that's the only thing you can do because you're not actually in a store you're in your living room and you have a horrible headset on and you're trying to do shopping in a virtual in a virtual grocery store um and that's that's the actual kind of scope of what we're going to be talking about today is virtual marketplaces and how they interact with seemingly real marketplaces yeah
5: I, i'm sure this is inspired by there were a couple of videos that dropped recently one of them from i think walmart well t- we're, w- gonna talk- we're gonna recent. be talking yeah, we're gonna be we're gonna be talking
6: about it so yeah so uh, a couple a couple of days after the 2020 new year a video went viral across the social medias ranking up over like 11 million views on twitter um and it was titled how walmart envisions shopping in the Mult- in in the metaverse now So, what followed was, like, two minutes of an embarrassing, like, VR jank, including, like, throwing around virtual gallons of milk from your cart into a virtual fridge. Many, many dunks were made, fun was had, but what few people probably realized is that, like, this this, this wasn't a Walmart metaverse test store. This was actually a five-year-old tech demo from before non-Neil Stevenson fans even knew what the term metaverse meant. So... A few years back, a tech company called uh, uh, Mutual Mobile partnered with Walmart for a project set to, quote, reimagine retail with virtual reality. Now, that sounds very fancy and important, but considering this was five years ago, and you're not hearing about it until now, shows how impactful (laughs) this thing actually was. The, The first stated goal of the tech demo, according to the Mutual Mobile website, was to impress influencers at South by Southwest 2017. So you know, just like the so-called metaverse is now, this was largely a promotional project um, and a way to attract investors. This was this was never actually yeah. a serious thing. It's,
5: it's I'm going to say it right now. South by Southwest was always one of the stupidest things in the world, um, and it, when it comes back, it will be still because it's, it's <laughs> stupid. It's a stupid place <laughs> for the most insufferable people in the world to come and talk about technology. Some people also listen to music. That's fine.
6: So yeah, for, for for the for the experience itself, they used an original Oculus uh, Rift and programmed a roughly like four minute linear um, expedition into a barren, hellish digital Walmart where you pick up and throw. <laughs> it, it
5: did. It did sound exactly. My favorite thing about this video is they were clearly using the audio of some sort of like shooter game because it was every awful. time like things would change. It would sound like you were in like fucking Doom going through a portal. It was extremely it's... funny. It was bad. It you, sounded like hell. <laughs> you you
6: you pick up and throw fake wine bottles into your blue digital cart <laughs> and the whole thing ends with a fake drone delivering an $800 TV that you fake purchased. It's it's not great. What Mutual Mobile and Walmart were trying to do, they, they have like a statement on their website back from 2017. It was uh they said that Walmart envisioned unveiling a fully virtual shopping experience that puts shoppers inside the store without ever leaving their homes. To attract customers and dispel the misconception that they're not as advanced as their more digital counterparts, brick-and-mortar establishments are not only accelerating investments in areas like web and mobile, they're also exploring the very edge of emerging technology. Walmart virtual reality is a case in point. Potential shoppers can virtually pick up products, read labels, talk to virtual associates, and fill their shopping carts. But the goal wasn't just to create something interactive. Walmart needed something that showed the potential of VR in retail while putting them ahead of the competition. So, I mean, this was, like, this was 2017, so this was kind of ahead in some ways, but also ahead in the ways that it's kind of showing how not useful this example is. So, obviously, like, this five-year-old video resurfaced now due to Zuckerberg and Epic Games, you know, forcing an astroturfed metaverse into the cultural zeitgeist, coupled with their, you know, conflation of anything vr to the legendary metaverse right because vr does not equal metaverse nor is it nor, nor is it necessarily vice versa but now these terms are getting used so interchangeably that someone can stumble across this video and be like oh look at this metaverse store when like it, it's not it's just a it's just a vr tech yeah, demo. The,
5: the metaverse in order to be like the thing that people have been imagining through Cyberpunk since like the 90s, it needs to be persistent and interact directly with the real world in a number of ways. Like it, it's it's yeah. it's this we'll, this. well, we'll get into
6: yeah. we'll get into kind of what metaverse could be in the future in terms of like the it could happen here idea, mm-hmm. and then not just a metaverse but a series of metaverses what they could be and how that kind of negates the original idea of it in the first place. But um, when asked by Vice News about the resurgence of their Walmart project. Mutual Mobile replied, "The vision of a virtual shopping experience we helped Walmart realize back in 2017 stands validated in the metaverse era of today. This whole experience has only encouraged us to keep experimenting, innovating, and leading the charge with cutting-edge tech." So, I mean, considering most of the virality of this was people joking about it, I, 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 yeah, sure, okay, okay. Mutual Mobile, good, Mm -hmm. good luck with that. So. A few days after the Walmart video went viral, uh, rumors of another big box store going metaverse started to circulate, again accompanied by a video of a possible like 3D metaverse storefront. Uh, reports emerged starting in India, claiming that H&M had announced that it would offer its customers a three-dimensional shopping experience in its virtual store inside the metaverse via something called, now I, I don't know if it's Keek City or Seek City, um, I'm not really comfortable saying either of those things because they sound weird but i'm I'm, mm-hmm. I'm gonna go with i'm gonna go with seek city that's a, yeah, that's a little bit better keek it
5: sounds like it's a slur i
7: know
6: i it's know not. i know but it's it's not, sounds but like it sounds like it's a slur <laughs> it sounds like it's a slur so i'm, I'm gonna say seek but it's it's mm-hmm. s-e-e-k um yeah. so this this account on on twitter called a uh, seek vr sh- uh shared the following from its official twitter account shopping in the metaverse with seek coin Concept VR store presented to H&M by Seek creates mainstream use cases for SeekCoin and scaling virtual reality beyond games. So I'll, I'll get into what Seek is in a bit, but the report said that customers would be able to walk through the store, choose the apparel they wanted to purchase in the Seek City universe, um, although the clothes could only be worn in the digital environment. Uh, payment would be made with a Seek coin, and customers could have the opportunity to order the same apparel from H&M's physical stores later. But that's, you're buying two separate things. One of it's the digital skin, one of it's an actual, you know, real thing. Um, so, what is Seek? Seek was launched in 2018. It's a Metaverse coin po- project built on the Ethereum blockchain and their 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 goal is to connect artists, athletes, and other digital content creators directly with their fans in virtual worlds. Uh, Seek's NFT marketplaces uh, is, is designed to enable real ownership look, of digital the items. The only way
5: in which I would actually want that is if it's me having a very sexual Zoom chat with Pit. You know what? We don't need to. Garrison, please continue. Okay. Okay. Uh-
6: And uh, uh, quoting from uh, Seek's website, Seek currently offers a range of immersive VR experiences within Seek City, including theater, concert arenas, sports complex,
5: hangout lounge, and more. Wow, it's all the things you can do in your real home, but weird (laughs) and on the internet. I
6: really hate it. This is horrible.
5: (laughs) (laughs) I I, I see a potential appeal for people who are like out in the sticks or in parts of the world where... They're not they feel no like they're very politically yep. or whatever disconnected, which is the same thing the internet already does. I'll and talk maybe about it yeah. being in VR will make it better. I don't know. I've lived in the middle of nowhere and relied on the internet to be social and I don't think I would have wanted to change the internet in for this because it sounds I'll, uh, yeah, anyway. It's I'll, 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 I'll
6: talk I'll talk about use cases in a sec. But mm-hmm. yeah, so End users will be able to use Seek Token to make purchases, vote for content, <laughs> control programming much more after Token launch. Seek VR, in partnership with Universal Music, can realize live performances of world-famous artists such as Bon Jovi, Lady Gaga, U2, Sting, and many more can take place on this platform. So Seek is like, it's it's kind of this startup, but it's been around for a while it's trying to do like you know virtual venues inside the metaverse. They they do have contracts with uh, Universal, so it, it's 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 a mix of tri- it's it's a mix of this coin. So it's a mix of this like cryptocurrency, also trying to use this, this cryptocurrency in this world they're trying to build up. Um, their 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 roadmap to metaverse right now. First thing is like payment integration. So using SeekCoin, they want SeekCoin to be the coin for everything in the metaverse. They want all of the metaverse to be based off this thing that they invented called SeekCoin because it'll make them money. Um, next thing they want to do is create a creator-enabled ecosystem. So kind of copy the, the content creator thing we have right now, port that into the metaverse, but again, have everything, you know, you can invest in your creators so you can vote on what they do using c coins and all of we talked about like personal ownership in the previous episode but then a lot of it you know they have like an nft marketplace avatar marketplaces etc cetera, etc cetera. but a lot of the stuff is built around like concerts you know venues a la you know a lounge movie theaters where you can do stuff in vr that is like that is the the main the main thing that Seek is trying to do, they do have this one, one quote somewhere. Oh yeah. The, the, the future milestone. So after they achieve this Seek metaverse where everything is ran through Seek, all of like, you know, what whether you're on Oculus, whether you're on a uh, Vive, all of it gets run through Seek. It's one, one multiverse, sorry, one metaverse. Their, their future milestones are quote, a VR space Academy. They do not, do not say what that means. Okay. Um, Keek Studios, cool. again, kind of unclear. I'm guessing like original content. And then the last one is a blockchain metaverse alliance. Those are their those are their three big future milestones after they get their-, their Wait, what was that last one? Blockchain metaverse alliance.
5: I mean, I'm, this was like in the Facebook thing too, right? The idea that we're going to integrate NFTs, but it was also clearly just like they tossed that in there on the Facebook one. There was no evidence they'd thought seriously about NFTs or blockchain. It was just had gotten big while they were preparing the thing. So they they tossed them in there. Um, I, I get the idea, right? Like the thing that they keep pitching with this is that you'll be able to have an item in one game that is yours. The company doesn't own it. You can take it to other games, which anyone who makes games will tell you is fucking nonsense it something like that might be vaguely possible in a metaverse where everything was forced to use the same engine um and all everyone was also forced to abide by a bunch of strict rules by facebook um that all that's probably violating antitrust laws um and also it seems like a ridiculously sisyphian task with no real benefit i don't think anyone's going to do it but i'm guessing that's what they're referring to when they want to jam the blockchain up in the fucking metaverse like what what else could it the,
6: mean the blockchain metaverse alliance yeah all of the blockchains and metaverses get aligned into yeah like they, they want to put all of the metaverse only stuff into one only you can wear blockchain. this
5: shirt in the metaverse
6: yeah woo so <laughs> just like the real world <laughs> <laughs> the freedom the freedom of the internet
5: can't you feel it the <laughs> ever-expanding possibilities. I do love, because they keep talking about within the context of Metaverse games, like, you'll get to unlock a character that's just yours and nobody else can play it and he'll have special abilities that means he wins all the time. It's like, why would people play that game? Like, there no. Was a fucking, I think it was Business Insider, someone's article talking about what, how neat it would be for games to work this way and like, think of all the money you'd make, people wanting to watch your character win. It's like, people don't want to just like watch a guy who's structurally unable to lose because he... He bought the right character in a racing game. Win every race. That's not. No one's going to pay to watch that. Do you understand what people watch races for? <laughs> like no, yeah. Anyway, it's well it's all let's, nonsense. Mm-hmm.
6: Let's hear from our good friends at our uh, products and services before we come back and talk more about Seek Coins. I guess I don't know. Seek. Yay! All right, we are back. So yeah. Seek coins virtual reality spaces run on smart contracts through the uh, through the the Binance smart chain, and they're 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 run they run through the Ethereum blockchain. Um, so the the uh, there's about seven and f- seven hundred forty-four million Seek coins in supply. Uh, the maximum uh, supply capacity is capped at one billion coins seek uh, coins uh, uh peaked at a uh, uh, one one dollar and 16 cents a year ago after launching it at around four cents um they're currently being traded for around 60 cents so that's that's what actual C coins doing like 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 people do use this it's not many people mm-hmm. <laughs> like they, they they do have these contracts with 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 universal music um but before this h&m thing i i never heard of seek coins um so two days after the rumors began circulating that H and M was you know partnering with Seek, H uh, and M H&M said, "Nope, we're, we we do not, we are we are not doing this." Uh, but they did not close the door on future possibilities. Uh, they said, uh, we, "We we like to we'd like to confirm that H and M is not op is not opening a store in the metaverse at this time. We're also not collaborating with Seek." So the official Twitter account for Seek subsequently clarified later on that uh, the store that they were doing was just a concept that was presented to H&M and not a, not a launching virtual store yet. Um, but they, they, do, they do say that they're in discussions with H&M to make this a reality, but it's not a reality as of now. So th- this, this kind of begs the question, like, what about a 3D digital space is superior to a 2D digital space for simple tasks like shopping online? So once you start, you know, unfolding questions like this about the Internet, Metaverse, AR, VR, you, there are more like, internal sides to this than you would have initially estimated. Um, but first off, before we kind of have this discussion, we should split this into two categories. One for shopping for like real physical items that you plan on like receiving in person and then digital items that don't physically exist and are just just on your computer and monitor. So. Obviously, like, there's no clear advantage in most cases to traversing an isolated virtual environment in order to order food as opposed to just scrolling through a web page. But once you expand out of the confines of VR's sensory deprivation, 3D 3D technology in AR, so augmented reality, does actually have some useful prospects, including some that are already in use. Um, Amazon and Ikea, for example... Have options on their perspective websites and apps that can like project furniture options into your living space. So you can, yeah, see that's how they the kind fit. of
5: thing that has some future, I think. Yeah. Yeah.
6: So th- th- currently, this is being done on your phone screen, but mm-hmm. an AR glasses application of this will actually serve its purpose quite well. Sure. Like, this is something, yeah, that, this seems is something like a thing that people would want. Yeah.
5: Yeah. The phone screen makes, version is pretty
1: mediocre. And these are,
5: mo- and that's kind of the thing, the, the place we're at. I, I, I We make fun of this stuff a lot because most of it's nonsense. There are, there are real, there's a lot of potential in some of these ideas, but there's their potential for like, on the same level that the air fryer has potential, where it's like a thing <laughs> a bunch of people will buy, but it's not, none of this yet is stuff that's going to completely change. Like, yeah, you might get a few million people to to get these gl- glasses and, or this app, maybe these glasses for a couple of reasons, but who would use this, this app to like help plan out how they're setting up their houses. You might get a few million people who do that. It's not going to be like an iPod or an iPhone or or like Facebook that no one's had figured that out yet there's there's some neat products that are going to be valuable but we're still in the stage where nobody's under nobody's figured out fundamentally what people want from this as opposed to like tiny specific needs in the same way that like there was a a, a number of futurists who quite ad- accurately figured out with a smartphone like oh people want a thing that will give them access to all of the the knowledge and ideas in the world and also let them yell at anybody anytime they want. Like that's something that is going to be incredibly successful and it has, and it's changed the entire world. Zuckerberg was like, people want to be able to be racist faster and by God, we wanted it. And, and that was huge. Um, I don't like these are, it's a good idea. Like, yeah, let people scope out how their room is going to look when they're shopping or whatever through AR, but we haven't yet hit that. This is going to change the world because being slightly better at, using ikea will not change the world
6: yeah i think as an avid air fryer mm-hmm. uh hater mm-hmm. i do think comparing yeah. metaverse to the air fryer is actually a I very love apt my
1: air comparison fryer, <laughs> <laughs> which i love to say to garrison
5: <laughs> i know garrison hates it when i use the air fryer i love yeah, my air I fryer am, uh, mm-hmm. anti-air fryer action is my new tattoo they screech um, like the the person at the end of Invasion of the body smashers. They do.
6: (laughs) (laughs) But my goodness, do they cook my food faster? (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They air fry it. (laughs) Fry it with the air. Wow. Yeah. Ah. Almost like it's impossible. Anyway, um, (laughs) Mutual Mobile's uh, digital marketing strategist talked with Vice after the Walmart video went viral. And he explained that, like, the demo was made to show the potential virtual reality and shopping experiences that they can have for, you know, different people, um, including its ability to connect, like, elderly people or people with disabilities to a shopping experience from the comfort of their own home, something that he thinks might even be, uh, you know, attractive to people who have been through several rounds of uh, COVID quarantine. And I can kind of understand this last argument, you know, during early quarantine I definitely used my VR headset more often than I had before, um, and with our alienated capitalist world, I can see the use of walking around a digital store if you're stuck at home um, due to something like a plague, or if you know if you have a physical or mental reason that makes you know going to a store difficult. Because, but like, it's yes, this this can help that, but also this is always it's very reliant on how these types of stores are set up and how these stores like affect your brain. It's like a big part of going to the grocery store. What it's designed to do is make it so that we're not just following a shopping list. There's like a structured joy of discovery. Everything about the design of the store is to get you to buy things you didn't think you needed before you walked in, and we're trained from birth to like to find this process pleasurable. So in that way, walking around a VR like Walmart or H and M might actually make some people happy, despite that being sad and dystopian. If you stop and think about it, right? Like, because that's that's actually like. It's a, it's a very capitalist thing, but it does make us happy because that's that's what we've been trained to do since we're babies. So that there is there is that side of it For in terms of like, yeah, I can see if I really don't want to leave the house, but I want to get the experience of walking through a place, maybe I will walk through a Target to get groceries. I don't know. I, as some people maybe might do that, but otherwise, you know, it's much easier. It is much simpler and easier to just scroll through a 2D thing on a webpage yeah. and 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 do the things you need. That's the but, thing.
5: Like it's like yeah. I mean, absolutely. Because <laughs> I, I I when I was making fun of one of these videos, somebody like called it out as being ableist and was like, think yeah, of all the yeah. uses this has for a disabled person. If they can use this, they can use Amazon. And like as a person who sometimes sh- I don't shop for groceries at Amazon, but I've shopped for groceries online. It's fine. the the the, the yeah. it's 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 everything it needs to be. You can get your groceries online, and the metaverse is just going to make it like weird and off putting, and in, unnecessarily complicated. Because at the moment, I can get groceries with my phone while I'm like jogging, um, or as I'm like sitting in traffic, or like while I'm on a Zoom call listening to Garrison talk about the metaverse, as opposed to putting on a headset and like doing the same thing basically as driving there but more expensively. Are anyway, you, it's are,
6: dumb. are you grocery shopping right now?
5: Uh, I am ordering 1,700 cans of Zevia and 40 pounds of raw beef.
4: Love your best That's a normal
5: life. week's worth of food for me. Love that's your best a best lot life. of Zevia.
6: <laughs> and that's literally yeah. like two days for him. See, but Robert, you could be doing this while wearing a bucket on your head and walking around a fake <laughs> store.
5: I could wear a bucket on my head to the real store. They can't stop me. I usually wear a bathrobe. <laughs>
6: This is the first half where it's like, you know, buying actual physical items that you plan to receive in stores. You know, furniture, this actually kind of makes sense. Uh, Food, it's a little bit iffy. The only kind of consideration there is if people want the mental effect of walking around a store, if they find that pleasurable, then it's a thing. But, you know, it's way more efficient to just scroll through your phone. Um, As for the other side, buying virtual items, whether they be, you know, NFTs, video game skins, or super special exclusive VR hangout rooms... I don't give a fuck how this works. If you wanna walk around a VR mall to buy your VR art and your VR clothes, knock yourself out. I I buy Sonic the Hedgehog games. We all have our weird things we do that don't make any sense. Yeah, if, if that's
5: if, you, if and that's you the <laughs> These grocery stores are just going to be like the 700 weirdest people in the country masturbating <laughs> as they buy wine and milk.
6: See, I that's the thing, Robert. I was when I was when I was doing the digital picture in the beginning I I had two scenarios one where you align the bottles into a dick the other one I was going to say you take off your pants and start masturbating and I I decided not to do that one so I'm happy that that you brought it up that
5: was the right call Garrison that was the right call because yeah
6: that is the actual use case for this is that someone's people are going to be walking around these fake Walmarts just all jerking off that's what's going to happen
5: they're going to have this animation of a real, real female employee of theirs who like pops up when you do something you're not supposed to do and explains something to you and it's going to be impossible to remove initially and people are going to turn it into a whole weird horny thing and like they will appear in all these circumstances it's going to go it's going to be the only thing that goes viral like it's going to be the only thing people remember five years later about the first of these this
6: is i'm going to circle back to this towards the end of part two but this is the actual way to handle the metaverse because we're gonna this this thing is going to be forced on us one way or another we're going to have a form of it and mm-hmm. honestly, the best thing we can do with it is either ignore it, ignore it, or maybe more attractively is to fuck with it. Like that's yeah, gonna be the it. thing. That's gonna be the thing to do. There was um an, an article a few days ago that uh, the headline is "Final Fantasy Porn Interrupts Italian Senate Zoom Event." So <laughs> <Yes>. someone, <laughs> someone joined in and started playing porn from Final Fantasy Seven. Yes, and, like this yes. is this, this yes. is the yes. thing to do. <laughs> Yeah, this is the way that we need to do it. If if there's gonna be dumbass like b- meetings on the Zuckerberg metaverse, we, people need to go in and make it weirdly horny.
5: Yeah, uh, Garrison, I could not agree more. That that's the what you need to do, citizens of the internet, is is look up something awful, Habbo, H A B B O Hotel. That's the kind of shit that we need to be doing in fucking um in in the. It, there was basically a children's video game. It was an early kids MMO, and a bunch of weird adults and something awful decided to create an unsettling cult of people who all looked identical and marched around doing all of these weird, unsettling things in a children's game. It was very fun, um, like or or like uh, in uh, in Second Life when it was the new yes. big sexy thing. There was this was this very self-important tech writer investor type person who was doing a Q and A and people just like animated (laughs) thousands of floating penises going around.
6: (laughs) And this is, this is going to be the thing. This is what you're going to have to do because in order, because if it's going to be this horrible corporate hell, the only way to do it, the only way to deal with that is to make it unusable for everybody so that it so that it doesn't get used, and the way to do that is by putting dicks everywhere. Yeah, dicks and we, boobs everywhere. If Joe everywhere, Biden ever everywhere. decides
5: to do a, a multiverse presentation, or if one party or another has had decides to do a multiverse debate, it is everyone's moral responsibility. Civic, to fuck it up. civic. Yeah, it is your duty. <laughs> this goes beyond civic. This is as a citizen of the human race. You know, as a member of this species, you have to try to find a way to fuck it up for them. So, Nothing could be more important.
6: So, yeah, so if, if you're buying digital items that you never plan to receive in person, I do not care how you do it. Knock yourself out. We all have our weird things. I I buy Sonic DLCs. People do World of Warcraft. If you want to get an art piece you can only hang in your digital room, that sounds miserable, but have fun. Yeah, um, I,
5: I used the internet to order very off-putting Danish cheese product. Oh, that, yeah, that did happen. That was off-putting. It was weird. That, it was like caramel you, you nonsense. tried to trick yourself into
6: liking it when you were eating it, though.
5: I do, yeah, I, I don't remember not liking it because I ate a good amount, <laughs> but I've had the second cube sitting around and I've had no desire to open no it No desire. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. so I, mean, I did not like it. I just, I don't know that I ever want to eat it again. I love that Qua- for you. <laughs> qu- quality
6: audio content. So here, here's the thing. I have not actually been talking about the metaverse. N- nothing I've mentioned thus far actually is the metaverse and doesn't have really anything to do with the metaverse besides the technology of VR and AR. You know, it. Turns out, companies like Facebook, Epic, Microsoft, and Valve—the way they talk about the metaverse—is kind of all a big lie. Like, it's not metaverse. It's a—it's an astroturfed, top-down marketing scheme to turn more of you into data and to create and to create viral marketing. Like, that's instead instead of an interconnected solution to the alienated bubbles of Web two, it's just a social media network that encompasses all of your vision and encourages even more digital alienation and less in-person socialization. Hey, um, kids,
5: you know the worst stuff about the internet? What if it was the only thing about the internet? What if
6: it was accompanying everything you see instead of just yeah. a computer
5: screen? It's so- like all of the, the gaming CEOs who were talking about the promise of NFTs. And, and like there, I think it was the um, one of the guys who runs Reddit. I think it might have been Alexis Ohanian or whatever their name is. Uh, who said that? Like in five years, ninety percent of games will be NFT based because people don't like wasting their time and not getting compensated for it. They're like, "Do you know what a game that's, is?" That's not why people you know play. What games. A game is.
2: Yes. <laughs> like,
6: so, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna talk more about metaverse as big tech or just bigger tech in part two. But this 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 will be wrapping up part one of the digital storefronts, and then we'll we'll get into some more kind of applications of this and how we're actually seeing it. In the second half, cool. so Robert, do you wanna do you wanna go buy a a virtual uh block of Danish cheese? Um, no,
5: <laughs> I I did when I was hanging out on top of a mountain the other day. I ran into a guy flying some drones, which I normally don't like, but this guy had a VR control rig for his very nice drones. Oh yeah, that, that those are fun. dope. That seems kind of dope. I might those I might cool. get into that shit. Um, sure. But no, I have no desire to shop I, I like going to the grocery store um as yeah a, I, I, I do as much of my shopping that way as possible because it's like soothing and uh nice and I think very human to go be around other people to, to get food but uh, yeah
6: that's the th- you know and things like the pandemic where that becomes harder, I think that is where the use cases for the digital stores actually sure. come in like theoretically, but if, we've never it you've could never seen them that feeling yeah. that
5: soothing yeah. which i it all just looks deeply off-putting. Yeah. it, it all
6: thing... it's the problem is that it's it's stuck it's stuck in the uncanny valley. so it's not pleasurable to be in those digital spaces, yeah, uh because you're even though it's being marketed as a solution to alienation, it's just more alienating uh, yeah. because it's because it, it's it's like very clearly exposing the alienation that we try to avoid. um so it falls right in the middle of the uncanny valley and it's not pleasant yeah, but we 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 we, we will talk more about that in part two. Um, If you want to follow the show on the social medias, uh, that is Coolzone Media and Happen mm-hmm. Here Pod. You can keep up with my tweets when I, I don't know, I don't know what I do on Twitter anymore, but that's Twitter. Hungry Bowtie, and you can uh, harass Robert Evans at I Read Okay. Yeah, motherfuckers. That's, do it. That's the show. Do, do it. Do it.
5: Do it or I'll kill you.
1: Robert, No. <laughs>
3: to just be me. Amy House, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson, rated R, under seventeen, not without parent, only in theaters May seventeenth.
7: Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this: there's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined.
1: more info now. Hi, I'm Mark
5: Zuckerberg. Welcome to the podcast where we talk about the metaverse. I enjoy barbecue sauce, and
6: you don't sound that, was, that doesn't that sound was my Mark Zuckerberg. Like that oh, was pretty good. That that is that is SNL worthy. Thank you, Garrison. Be- because it's because it's so bad. All right, um, <laughs> <laughs> now. <laughs>
2: We've part two.
6: that was that was my only goal. <laughs> this is this is part two of the metaverse that never was um here at it could happen here. And we're actually going to be talking about like the it could happen here. I can't wait here, till we launch a metaverse of
5: show and pretend we never said all this shit. It's going to be the best garrison.
6: You know, Robert <laughs> r- Remember remember when I was talking about um Seek City and all of the virtual venues? mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Yeah, I just, I just, great. I just got a message from our beloved parent company, iHeartMedia. Oh, good. That they plan to extend um, shows into the metaverse, oh, uh, which was an, which was announced a few weeks ago. Uh, well, yeah, you know, guess, Garrison, a, 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 I've always ago.
5: thought that the metaverse was a pretty good idea.
6: I think we we will talk about how the metaverse could be cool later in this episode, but then we'll explain why it won't be. Uh, but yeah, I iHeartMedia did announce so Web3 and the metaverse are the newest consumer platforms for iHeartMedia. So sorry, I'm, I'm I was just working yeah, in a, it's, I mean, it's fine, w- working like, in a matrix yeah. 4 reference there. So oh, uh, yes, I, I see what yeah. you're doing. There, Garrison. Th- thank you. Um anyway, so I'm I'm guessing for non-Neil Stevenson fans, many of you probably had not heard of the metaverse before last year. Um, VR, sure, you've heard of VR, AR, maybe, um, but probably just as, like, niche gaming technology, you know, not, yeah. not this massive, not not like a massive successor to the internet. Um, primarily, three companies, Facebook, Epic Games, and Valve, uh, the, the later two being mostly gaming and software companies, um, kind of all decided the best way to push their niche uh, VR and software technology into the zeitgeist was with this flashy new marketing. And it kind of worked. Metaverse is now in many more people's like personal lexicon, but it's not really the metaverse. You know, like the Walmart thing. It's a way to attract investors and drum up free press. But it's still the same old VR and AR applications of the technology. Yeah. None of these companies are trying to make metaverse a thing that we actually want, or you know, working towards an interconnected, immersive, 3D open source successor to the internet. All of the different websites and services we use united under one digital roof like a super platform that you know is is made up of all of these sub platforms you you have social media online gaming and all of like the you know ease of life apps all accessible through the same digital space under the same digital economy that that thing isn't happening people like that's not what people with money are actually pushing towards even though they're still using the metaverse term yeah um there was a great piece in Wired that came out last month as a part of their Matrix VR issue. Um, mm-hmm. It was uh, called uh, "The Metaverse is Simply Big Tech, But Bigger." It was by uh, Cecilia DeAntasio. It was so it's, it's a wonderful piece, and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say a quote from it right here. Um, by the mid 2000s, it became clear that money wasn't in building individual websites that we could access on the open web. It was making information sorters, channels, aggregators, and publishers open enough to scale with user-generated content, but closed enough to reap enormous profits. This was the evolution from Web 1 to Web 2. For nearly 30 years, the gravity of the consolidation has pulled the cyberspace together under the auspice of fewer and fewer corporate titans. The freaky little planets get drawn together, collide, and make bigger planets, collide again, and make stars or even black holes. Facebook eats Instagram and WhatsApp. Amazon swallows two dozen e-commerce sites, and you're left with these few supermassive players controlling and appropriating the celestial motion of billions of users. This is how big tech got big. Uh, End quote. So, yeah, like, now we have all of our isolated toolboxes and they really fight against any inter-platform integration. You have, you know, Microsoft Office and their, their, like, off, their Office Suite. You have, like, Google mm-hmm. Workspace. You have Apple's own, like, AirDrop, Apple Pages, and, Fi- and Final Cut Pro. Plus the, the nightmare that is Adobe's subscription tools. Like, G- Google wants you to spend all day checking your Gmail, traveling with Google Maps, watching videos on YouTube, and browsing on Chrome. Meanwhile, your friend texts you via iMessage, uses Apple Maps, and calls his mom on FaceTime. This is Not the a single
5: person in the world uses Microsoft Edge.
6: That is true, but like this, this form of the internet is the one that the metaverse is growing out of. Metaverse is just a way for tech companies to add VR and AR and the accompanying extra surveillance and data collection to this porfo- to like their own portfolio of proprietary products. But in order for that to happen, they need to convince us that we need headsets for the next evolution of the internet. So it's not surprising that Facebook and Zuckerberg were the first ones to crack this thing wide open. It's, they own not only four of the top six so- social media platforms, but also Oculus, which is the most popular manufacturer of VR hardware. VR has been relegated to niche gaming technology for, like, basically two decades, and Zuckerberg decided the best way to sell more of his headsets and software was to give the tech a fresh new paint job and call it Metaverse. And, like, it's sort of working... There were approximately 9.4 million shipments of VR headsets in 2021, 3.6 million of which were done during the holiday season, after Facebook's big Metaverse event. It's suspected that the Quest 2, which is made by Oculus, aka Facebook, um, makes up for more than three quarters of all those headsets sold. So demographics data isn't explicitly available, but probably a lot of kids received these things as holiday gifts. Um, Oculus Meta Facebook does not release its VR headset sales figures, but the Oculus app that uh, that you need to have to make the headset work uh, shot to the top spot in Apple's App Store on Christmas Day. That was the first time it's ever been the n- the number one mm-hmm. app on the App Store, so indicating a spike in headsets received as holiday gifts. So th- they're selling a lot of headsets. Like, uh, like Oculus is is selling a lot of their things. Like you know I I I got one a few years ago. But you know now there's 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 more and more of them circulating. Um, but you know, this, it's still all relegated to VR, like it's not actually Metaverse. You know, arguably the closest thing we have to the actual metaverse is stuff like Roblox and Minecraft. Now, th- that is still not it's, that's not immersive 3D. it's you're still looking at it through a 2D screen, but it, it, it is software that gives users development tools to create their own projects within this shared 3D space. What separates these things, and basically all attempts from making the metaverse, from being the ideal metaverse is still the proprietary aspect. Everything is isolated islands. You you can't take your Roblox game into Minecraft, right? It still is isolated to their specific things. But, you know, nevertheless, Roblox's uh, CEO described the company as the shepherds of the metaverse in early 2021, and he is kind of right. Like, that's that's not totally inaccurate. Um, I'm going to quote again from the, uh, the Wired piece uh, by Cecilia D'Antazio. Um If big tech's unchecked growth continues, there will be multiple metaverses, if there are any at all. Each will be interoperable under one tech giant's giant umbrella, the same way Apple is both a walled garden and a convenient, habitable terrarium for its dedicated consumers. Users love the seamlessness of Apple's proprietary operating system. The um, ambiguity of iMessage and Apple presumably loves the thirty percent commission it can charge on developers who sell apps in their App Store. So, Epic Games is the other big metaverse proponent right now. You know they were they were actually making announcements about metaverse a few months before Facebook did. Um, and the the CEO of Epic Games, uh, Tim Sweeney, has been outspoken against a metaverse ran by a big tech giant like Apple, but that's not that's not really genuine because his version of the metaverse entails a cyberspace made accessible through fortnite and unreal engine two things owned by epic games so like it's not like he's not actually sincere about creating an open source thing he just wants to be the one to control it he's just upset that he thinks someone else might um he tried to uh, sue apple uh, last year and, and failed um and the california judge told him that uh Epic Games seeks a systematic change which would result in a tremendous monetary gain and wealth. The lawsuit is a mechanism to challenge the policies and practices of Apple and Google, which are an impediment to Mr. Sweeney's vision of the oncoming metaverse. So it's not actually about, like, him being against big tech giants and being against a big tech giant-ran metaverse. It's just that he doesn't like that he won't be able to make as much money with it if multiple tech companies... Work together to make it like that's 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 really what he's concerned about. He would rather be in control of this thing, um, because like yeah, it would be really interesting to see if multiple tech giants work together to create an actual successor to the internet, like an actual like you know how the internet's just when you open up your computer and you have access yeah. to the net. It's not it's it's not like running a specific program. You get to go on all the things. It would be interesting if people actually work towards creating that. But no, it's all about creating very isolated operating systems with a very isolated tool like tool chest like you can't access steam games via the Oculus store these things don't these things don't work now you can oculus you can use the oculus on steam games but not vice versa
5: they're making things the way they're making things because they're not trying to design a new internet because for one thing the internet wasn't designed it was like the result of a bunch of it, people yeah. who were doing things that interested them all kind of intersecting and building upon each other and second like yeah they they're not they're making individual profit tunnels. They're not actually trying to create um they're not trying to re- like actually trying to think about what people might want next or what people might might want beyond the internet. They're thinking how what can we sell that we're not currently selling? And that's never going to be the thing that figures out yeah, I, I don't know.
6: Yeah, on on that point, I'm going to do one final quote from the Wired piece. Um if, if these companies, dominating cyberspace, did decide to collaborate simultaneously, piecing together opposite sides of the quilt to create a digital textile, that would be very polite. But is there a world in which Microsoft, Facebook, Epic Games, Apple, uh, NVIDIA, etc. combine all of their valuable products, Captain Planet style, into an architect of the metaverse under open source standards nobody in particular reaps billions from? That's sort of a tall task. To overhaul your code and collaborate with your competitors... Why would three or four tech giants partner to make a metaverse when they already spent decades and billions constructing one of their own? So yeah, it's 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 never gonna happen. The way the way society is made, the way internet works, that's not ever gonna be a thing. And speaking of companies and things that you can buy online and advertising, here's some ads. Woo! And we're, we're back, back. Oh. And we're we're gonna talk about possibly the most successful version of AR of, of vr technology we're gonna, ta- we're gonna talk about the actual use cases that are generating actual profit so <laughs> there is a there was a tweet a few days ago that uh i'm, I'm just gonna read the tweet and then we'll, then we'll talk about the implications um th- this went very very viral um i caught okay. this very early on though and I, I started writing about it and then a whole bunch of articles dropped on the topic a farmer in Turkey has fitted his cows with virtual reality goggles to make them think they are outside in summer pastures. The farmer found out that these pleasant scenes make the cows happier and produce more milk. Future is metaverse. Uh, so, that's... we're going to talk we're going to talk about the cow matrix. We're going to talk about <laughs> the, Yeah. Yeah, it is it is amazing.
5: Time. <laughs> To go back in time and tell people, hey, you know that hit movie The Matrix? In the future, we're going to do that, but for more milk. <laughs> to get <Yeah>. milk. <laughs>
6: so the thing that went viral about it, that kind of broke the story for a lot of people, was this farmer in Turkey with the pictures of the cows with VR goggles on them. Pretty, pretty, pretty fucked up. Um, but the, the idea and the actual technology used uh, came from came from Russia. Um, uh, farmers worked together with developers, uh, veterinarians and consultants at the, uh, oh boy, here, here's a Russian town name, or I guess a farm name, Kragskernovk, I don't know. Yeah, that it's, sounds it's, right. It's, that sounds it's close right. enough. I, I think we can,
5: we can, we we, I think you nailed it. <laughs> it's,
6: it's, it's, it's this farm near Moscow, um, and they teamed up, so all these, you know, farmers, developers, and vets and consultants teamed up to make this cow matrix project. Um, there was a, an official statement from the Moscow Ministry of Food and Agriculture reads, The global trend towards universal computerization significant, significantly simplifies work processes in many areas that, and allows you to achieve unprecedented results. Russian milk producers keep up with the world standards and are even ready to offer the market new and unexpected solutions. On a farm in the Moscow region... A prototype of virtual reality glasses were tested to improve the conditions for keeping cows. Employees of one of the largest farms in the Moscow region, together with IT specialists, decided to conduct an experiment studying the influence of virtual reality and developed a layout of VR glasses. So, the the herd donned these VR systems adapted for the heads of cows— um, so like, and they also had to, they had to, uh, to, to make the imagery work, they needed to tweak the color palette in the software to make it suitable for the cow's vision because cows can't see red or green. So there's just shades of yellow and blue. So in order to mm-hmm. replicate what grass click to them, they had to, you know, change the stuff. Um, but yeah, and they programmed a, a unique summer field simulation program and subjected it onto these cows. Uh, the ministry, the the Russian Ministry of Agriculture concluded that the cow matrix does work. Um, in a statement from 2019, this right. was f- a few a few years ago. Uh, officials said environmental conditions have significant have a significant impact on cow health, and as a consequence, the quality and quantity of milk produced. So you know, like this is the thing. I I, I talk with um someone I know about this, and they're like, well, if it makes the cow like. Actually, happier and healthier than like, what's the problem? And like, the problem is, is that like you're gaslighting an entire creature's reality. Like you're like you're 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 like non consensually gaslighting their reality, and I. That is, I don't like that. Yeah, like, I don't mean everything like,
5: we do to cows is without their consent. So I, I it's one of those things where it's like, but is we're this, also
6: not gaslighting their reality in this. Like, we're not depriving their senses of what the world
5: is. No, this seems like an escalation in our war on the cow.
6: Yeah. So you know, this other farmer in Turkey heard about this and decided to try it out on his cows. Um and, yeah, the fucked-up cow matrix, or the cow tricks, uh, does seem to do its job, extracting more milk from the cow to increase profit profitability. Sweet. Um A quote, fr- quote from the farmer said, uh, We get an average of 22 liters of milk per day from the cows in our farm. The milk average of the two cows that wore the VR glasses went up to 27 liters. So, yeah. When 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 the story first broke there was a, the, the most popular article was from a site called futurism which made yeah. made, made me made me very depressed about the about futurism. Yeah.
5: Um you it, should be uh, depressed about futurism Garrison.
6: Yeah, it 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 made me mad enough that I'm going to read some of it to you. Oh good. Thank God. <laughs> I haven't been angry in seconds. <laughs> <laughs> that cows produce more milk when VR makes them think they're in beautiful green pastures, proves that keeping them in agriculture environments isn't healthy, nor does it make them happy. Putting them in a cow matrix does sound a little grim, yes, but you can't argue with the results. Oh, my God.
5: <laughs> I can. <laughs> I, I say you actually can. Also, with- all this has shown is that, like, potentially if you put cows in this thing during the winter when it's not sunny and bright outside, then they are happier. This is not shown that, for example, taking all cows out of pastures and sticking them in matrix boxes would make them happy. Yeah, because the like, thing is,
6: they're not they're not in pastures; they're in little jail cells with VR goggles on their head. So, like, it's that was that was the use case. And like, th- yeah. the quote from the farmer is like, "They're watching green pasture, and it gives them an emotional boost. They are less stressed." Um, and the farmer said he t- plans to he plans to buy ten more. So, like, you can spend thousands of dollars on specialized cow VR headsets. Um. Or you can, you know, like use that money to buy more land for the cows to spread out. And in, if we're at that point in society that, in order to make, in order to, in order to make enough cow milk, we need to gaslight cows by overruling their senses with a clunky VR headset on their little fussy faces. Maybe we should stop having milk. Maybe we should like. Maybe mm-hmm. that's it. Like, if if we require this to have milk in our cereal, then nope, no more. Not not gonna. I'm not gonna do that. I refuse. That's not, like, it's already an iffy practice if you don't buy milk, like, like locally from a farm you know. So if, if we're doing this, that just, like, immediately checks me out of every, like, no. I'm just fully, fully not.
2: Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, I think that's kind of evil. I think that's kind of evil. Like, the whole industry w- w- way by which we produce meat at scale is pretty evil. But yep. that's an escalation. That's an the, escalation.
6: It's it's the spe- the specific thing of like of 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 overruling their reality and senses um, of another living creature like that is that, yeah. yeah for some reason for some reason not that just that turning that upsets them me.
5: into a way in or- for you to get like meat and not just like turning them into food but.
6: Like making their living conditions really shitty and then making trying to trick them to thinking
5: they're not. Yeah. It's even worse than just having them live in shitty conditions. I think from an ethical standpoint, it maybe it's more pleasant for the animal, but from like our standpoint, it's worse to me.
6: Yep. So speaking of, uh, uh, I don't
5: know, don't do this to cows. (laughs) Is
6: there there some segue that we can work this in? You know
5: what does essentially force you to live in an alternate reality that allows you to be more productive for the people who make money based on your existence buying these
6: products and services that support this Uh, podcast
5: oh i was just gonna say podcasts in general do that but yes yeah so yes
6: cool all right we are back and my my last my last big section here is titled we are the cows so this is that's gonna no. that's gonna give give you a sense Nuh-uh. of how of how we're gonna talk about what's don't happening. don't
5: like it, don't like it.
6: <laughs> so what 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 the cow tricks really demonstrates though is that the end goal of all this is to make us the cow, right? I we we are, and we already are to some degree with like the internet and, smart, and and smartphones, but this is more. This is an escalation, right? Like the people, the ghouls at Silicon Valley and you know the whole tech world. Want they? They want a world where we are forced to don hardware rigs that block out our body's senses and replace the input with digital coded counterfeit. That's that's an in, in, internet that tries to convince you that you're inside of it and it is inside of you. That that's yeah. that's, that's that, that is what they want, really. Like even if we get the metaverse, that I would prefer. You know, like the, the mythical open source interconnected successor to the internet with all of its different websites, tools, and games that I like, all together and intuitively accessible through a shared digital space, even if we get that, like which we won't, and we if won't. there's safeguards to protect digital privacy that are built in, which there wouldn't be, mm-hmm. that doesn't actually make the real world much better. Like it, In my opinion, AR technology specifically could be really cool. Um, but yeah, re- des- stuff But stuff
5: about it. Mm-hmm.
6: But redesigning the world to require headsets, goggles, or AR glasses would suck. Like that would yeah. not only for people who can't get that technology, right? If, if if we redesign the world to be like the only way to interact with systems is through this digital lens, that's gonna suck. We we, we now we already have that to some degree with smartphones and the internet, but this is another escalation of it.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: And again, like like the cow, it's just gonna be a way to paint over our late capitalist climate disaster of a world. Uh, metaverse is a tech capitalist solution to our current and pressing political and ontological problems.
5: And I have yeah. used the bathroom. Best- really badly <laughs> well I'll talk for a little while I think a big part of what Garrison is saying is that instead of relying on these tech industry ghouls to to build the future for you which is a future in which they sell you a way to hide from the hell that they have made of the world and others like them have made of the world instead of doing that you could just spend the rest of your life listening to podcasts. Put put blinders on over your eyes. Cover up all of your senses but your ears and just exist forever in a cocoon made entirely of my voice and, and occasionally Garrison and Chris's and Sophie's voice. But mainly my voice. So you're, and, say- so you're let- saying
6: not listen to just any podcast but podcasts that you benefit from.
5: I don't think people should listen to any <laughs> podcast that I don't do. That doesn't seem right, Sophie. <laughs> Where's uh, my angle on that, huh? I don't know. Um, I don't know how long we should vamp while Garrison just leaves in the middle.
2: Of the I, I, I,
5: I really need needed to be. Really uh, was... Well, it's okay. I just told everybody that we're the metaverse now, Garrison. Our I, dr- I drank so much
6: coffee this morning. It was a problem. <laughs> okay. And similar to all this, you know, remember the John Carmack interview from 2020?
5: Yes. Oh, that's such a bummer.
6: The the Doom co-creator and former CTO of, of Oculus.
5: Yes, these bodies are a curse, John.
6: <laughs> yeah. On The Joe Rogan Show, he openly said, The promise of VR is to make the world you wanted. It is not possible on Earth to give everyone what they would want. Not everyone can have Richard Branson private islands. People react negatively to any talk of economics, but it's resource allocation. You have to make decisions about where things go. Economically, you can deliver a lot more value to a lot more people in the virtual sense. We can have virtual devices... That can get cheap enough that lots and lots of people will be able to have these. Not everyone can have a mansion. Not everyone can have a home theater. These are things we can simulate, though, to some degree in virtual reality. Now, the simulation is not as good as the as the real thing. If you're rich, you probably have your own home theater or mansion in private island. Good for you. You're probably not the people who's going to benefit the most from this thing. Most of the people in the world live in cramped quarters, and are not. And they would. That and that's not what they would choose to be in if they had unlimited resources. There's this piece of art that goes around the internet. It's the, this dystopian kid in a corner, drooling with goggles on, with like rainbow pictures, but it's a terrible-looking place. And people say, this is the world you're trying to build. People plug it into virtual reality and ignoring the world around them. And <laughs> Carmack's response is encouraging. He, he says, but is his life really better off if he takes the goggles off and he's in the horrible place? So I, I I think Carmack really has convinced himself that virtual reality is a path to making the world a better place. In In the interview, he compares VR to the invention of like air conditioning. He says, like, I I live in Dallas. It's 100 degrees here. We change the world around us in all that we do. We live in air conditioning. People don't generally go, oh, you're not experiencing the world around you because of air conditioning. This is what human beings do. We bend the world to our will. and This is how things get better. By by building technology and distributing them to people so that they have something better than what they would have if they didn't exist. Now, if you dig into what he's saying here, there's actually a few interesting things. Because, for one, yeah, air conditioning is actually kind of bad. Like... The way yeah. we're using it and what it represents, it is a band-aid
5: solution to our continual problem of heating up the earth. And it's making the problem worse every single day.
6: Yeah, and honestly, it's it's yeah, it's like it's like a band-aid that also makes the problem worse because AC contributes to a lot of it's energy like a use Band-Aid and emissions. made
5: out of human shit.
6: But you know, air conditioning is also an actual material change, right? Like it can it can yeah. actually help people not die due to heat. The metaverse in VR as talked about does not improve a middle- to lower-class person's material conditions. And no. to say so demonstrates how disconnected these tech bros are from a regular person's reality. The metaverse and VR and like virtual worlds are going to be built based on the perception of reality held by those who create them. That's why we're getting shitty digital private movie theaters, fake mansions, mm-hmm. and metaverse concerts, and H&M NFT stores. They're giving us a simulated version of the world that they actually get to live in for real— we can refuse this. We we don't need to take them up on this offer. If we're going to be stuck with a with multiple proprietary branded uh, metaverses that are made by rich tech bros to mirror a world that the that the rich tech bro gets to live in, the best thing we can do is fuck with it. We can sabotage yeah. it from the inside. We need to spam floating dicks at a metaverse concert. This yeah. is
5: the actual thing that needs to happen because, like. Look, We all know terrorism is fun, right? Everybody loves terrorism, but there's horrible consequences for doing it in the real world. In the metaverse, there's no laws against terrorism yet. You can terrorize however you want in the metaverse and it's just trolling and that's fine. So do as much of it as possible until they make it illegal. The concept that would go really well with this
6: type of thing is the poetic terrorism concept. Mm -hmm. yes, This applies like, perfectly to this idea of how we need to fuck with these digital spaces that are trying to be created because yeah like they're like they're pretty bad during 2021 bitcoin consumed all of the uh, electrical energy um by uh, equivalent to a country like argentina um Mm -hmm. in 2021 the bitcoin network handled like uh, 97 million transactions so this is roughly zero point zero one two percent of the worldwide volume of non cash transactions, but Bitcoin was responsible for zero point uh, five four of global electricity consumption on total, which is astronomical. Like yeah, all. That's all the- like that's it's it is ridiculous. On average, that's like uh, a, a like thirteen hundred uh, kilowatt hours per per Bitcoin transaction which is so much energy. The power consumed by a single Bitcoin transaction on average could power an average U.S. household for one and a half months. It is it is ridiculous how much and how much it's getting used. And they're trying to build, you know, like the Seek City thing, they're trying to build this metaverse off of crypto, which they're, like, I, I'm sad because, like, crypto could be really, like, similar to the metaverse, crypto could be really rad. Like, crypto could be an actually super rad thing. But the way it's being used right now is really environmentally damaging. Um, and this this linking of Web 3, you know, the mythical web three and the metaverse to crypto is showing like, yeah, it's it is kinda like the Band-Aid solution where it's not it's 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 not it's not actually fixing the problem and it's kinda making the problem worse because yeah. they're so set on linking it to crypto right now that it's it sucks. Like it's 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 gonna happen, and it's gonna suck. What you can do is you can spam Final Fantasy VII porn. You can spam Sonic the Hedgehog feet pics. This is this is the only tool we have. <laughs> but s- save for actual terrorism, which we're not going to talk about on this podcast, you can, but we can talk about poetic terrorism. That is something that you can do. You can fuck with these systems from the inside and make them unusable. And that's, that's really the only thing. <laughs> and that's what I'm going to do in my spare time because it's fun. Yeah.
5: yeah um do do poetic terrorism in the metaverse um go fuck it up for them um and maybe in the process here's my dream garrison that perhaps in the process of fucking it up for them we build something that we actually like that's the thing right yeah mm-hmm. that is similar to how the
6: internet kind of got originally created of mm-hmm. course now it's turned into this hellscape but has, you know, that'll, pro- that'll probably happen it'll anyway. It'll take 10
5: years or more for the metaverse. But
6: we can get a little bit of fun out of it.
5: <laughs> and we can have some fun with it like we did on the internet for a couple of years. Uh-huh. Before it all got real bad. So uh. that, is
6: the, that is the metaverse that doesn't exist. Um, and yeah, so fight against the cow matrix as best as you can.
5: <laughs> <laughs> do, do your best. Pull them and out. Do... Build a city for the cows in the Extract... center of the world.
6: <laughs> Make a cow Zion. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) It's up to us. (laughs) God, this is depressing. All right, that's the episode.
4: for For more info now.
5: Welcome to It Could Happen Here, a show about things falling apart and how to maybe put them back together uh, a little bit better than they were before. I am Robert Evans, uh, and with me this week is a guest I'm very excited about, uh, Chris Begley, author of The Next Apocalypse, The Art and Science of Survival. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you, Robert. Now, Chris, before we get into the meat of our discussion, I I have to Talk about what you do for a living, because for years and years it was my job to go around the world. I I talk to people on pretty much every continent about their different interesting jobs. So I've I've talked interviewed everybody from like brothel workers in Nevada to Iraqi uh, counterterrorism special forces in Iraq. And you have probably the coolest job title of anybody I've met. You're an underwater archaeologist. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. How did you um? How did you? I mean, was that was it just kind of like? Were you kind of laser focused on that goal, or was it more you were interested in archaeology and you loved diving, and so the two just kind of made sense together?
2: Yeah.
8: Well, I started out as a what I now call a terrestrial archaeologist. You know, working on land as most people do, and worked for years in Central America. Honduras was my mm-hmm. focus, as you saw in the book. Yeah. Uh, but other other places uh, uh, nearby as well. And really, it was about I would say. I don't know, 12, 13, 14 years ago. Uh, I wanted to just branch out a little bit from that. And one of the things that uh, that all archaeologists have seen is that, you know, there are certain things that really just aren't as uh, explored as other things. And one was all of the archaeological resources underwater. I mean, we hear about underwater archaeology or maritime archaeology in the Mediterranean, right? You know, mm-hmm. Roman shipwrecks and all that uh, but there are big chunks of the world where we've done very little to see what's out there, you know. And one other interesting thing about that is there are many different things you could look at underwater, but often we look at shipwrecks.
2: Mm-hmm.
8: And shipwrecks are different from regular archaeological sites because, you know, a shipwreck is a moment in time. That all happened in uh, in one instance. And so when we're looking at that kind of archaeological site, we see this snapshot that we don't see when we look at a place that was occupied over hundreds of years, so you know, so th- yeah, so that wasn't my focus, but it became uh, sort of uh, somewhere I wanted to go as I learned more about it.
5: And one of the things I find really interesting the 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 basic thrust of your book is that the way in which we think about civilizations falling or collapsing or or how however you you know mm-hmm. the ways in which folks tend to discuss that when we're talking about the Maya or the Romans, um, is, is very different from what archaeologists who tend to study these cultures, how they tend to perceive of, of what you might more accurately call a decline or, or you know, the, a decentralization or whatever. I think there's a number of terms that we could use. But yeah. these ideas that, like, you have these civilizations and then they suddenly fall apart— um, are not really based in rigorous historical analysis. Usually, um, there's some cases as as you go into the book, um, yeah. and I'm I'm I, I'm interested in that because you're kind of coming at from a, a very rigorous historical standpoint in this book. Um, a lot of the stuff that we talk about on on this show in a more contemporary sense, and I'm I'm kind of wondering how the idea to write this sort of came together because you, you started it before the COVID-19 pandemic, obviously right. that had an impact on the book. It's, 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 <laughs> yeah, on, uh, all everything. over there. Yeah.
8: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I've, I was, um, one of the things that I do is teach uh, wilderness survival courses mm-hmm. and, um, and I, I don't do that as frequently as some people that, that sort of dedicate themselves uh, to that do, but uh, but, uh, but I do it fairly frequently. And um, it became obvious to me over time that people w- were taking these courses, not just to learn how to deal with being lost out in the wilderness, which is sort of mm-hmm. was my vision. What do you do if you unexpectedly have to spend a night out in the woods or, or two or three? Um, they were really thinking about what do I do when things fall apart? How do I take care of myself? How do I take care of my family using these skills that you could use in a situation where things had fallen apart and that sort of oriented me towards the 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 fact that you know people were worrying about the future I mean I could see it I could see it in my students at the university I could see it you know in the people's faces at the supermarket uh you know there was something going on there that was um uh that was concerning people, and a lot of it had to do with climate change. And that, I think, was uh, was the focus initially for me writing this. Um, because what I saw was, uh, you know, sort of uh, the, the prepper community and survivalist community looking at things that really seemed to be short-term and didn't at all focus on what we really saw historically. So I think that my um, my initial motive to... Motivation to write this was really uh, just seeing uh, this concern that was that was growing among people about what the future is going to look like, and then of course COVID hit, and that that uh, that really brought all this to the to the forefront.
5: And are there any specific ways in your mind that you you can you kind of think on how COVID altered? what you were what you were writing or how you conceived of what you were writing like once you you know you you have this kind of vision that's inspired by the things that you're seeing and hearing particularly mm-hmm. in these wilderness survival courses and then as you get started we have this horrible horrible plague hit and a number yeah. of 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 things start to happen very quickly how does that kind of alter the trajectory of what you're writing
8: yeah i guess the you know the the there were some just sort of practical logistical things obviously mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Some things that I intended to do or ways that I'd hoped to interact with folks in the course of interviewing people for the book or writing it, you know, wasn't going to be possible. Uh, But in terms of thinking about how things happened, the big thing for me was um, how it became politicized so quickly. You know, that was, um, you know, in the... um, you know, you know, well, now you see all uh, of the memes, you know, uh, mm-hmm. talking about the zombie movies where half the population doesn't believe they're zombies or something, yeah, you know, that yeah. was never really on the radar, at least not on my radar
2: mm-hmm.
8: um, before. And so now, um, um, you know, it is because clearly not only do these things happen and then you have a group of people that are dealing with it. Uh, you have, th- obviously, the dynamics within the group, which, which of course, we knew, but to see it play out in this way, in this uh, sort of dramatic way that really altered the course of history. I mean, the pandemic could have turned out, uh, you know, differently,
5: mm-hmm.
8: uh, but it didn't. And part of the reason that it didn't was because of the way folks reacted to it.
5: And I'm, I'm wondering... Because a a part a chunk of your career and a big chunk of this book is kind of looking at in places like Honduras where these these civilizations entered decline and in some cases it was very sharp like within a fairly short period of time ninety percent of the population leaves or you know uh, is is deceased Um, and you you see like the crumbling of a lot of these governmental institutions and whatnot that had had organized life for a while you see the uh, pretty significant migrations. Um, is there any ways in which kind of the last two years, as an archaeologist, has uh, changed or informed how you were thinking about um, these places that you'd been you'd been studying and these moments in history that you'd been studying for so long?
8: Yeah, in some ways, it brings some of it into a little sharper focus. For instance, you know, one of the things that that uh, archaeologists had long talked about was that during these declines or these collapses, that it's uneven; it's not mm-hmm. equal for everybody. It's not uh, equal over space and time, and certainly depending on your position in society, um, there's different ways in which uh, it it uh, it plays out for you. Um, you know, and that's something that we see, we see it from, um, you know, access to uh, vaccines to, um, well, I mean, even things like, uh, you know, if we think about folks that are unvaccinated now, there's a, you know, a chunk of those people that are uh doing it for a sort of political reasons or other sure. ideological reasons but there's also a big uh, uh a big group of those folks that are doing it because history shows that they should be wary of mm-hmm. anything that uh society tries to do to them mm-hmm. and so you know you have these uh, these things playing out for different ways for um You know, people from different regions of the country or political orientations or race or ethnicity or, um, you know, a whole variety of things. And so seeing how uneven it was, the pandemic, uh, uh, makes me think that, you know, it it certainly was that way then. Uh, The other thing that we see when we look archaeologically is that it's these big structures or systems that collapse that really is the collapse. Mm -hmm. And the things that cause it initially, whether it's, I don't know, deforestation or drought or warfare or even a natural disaster of some sort, um, that really it's uh, the way people respond to those and the way these uh, systems deal with those changes that really creates the, the the problems that you see later on. And we can see that now, for instance, one of the things that we're talking a lot now about is uh, supply chain issues, mm-hmm. right? And this is a result of COVID, but it's not a direct result. I mean, it's not because the crews on the ships or at the ports or truck drivers have uh, um, are sick. It's because of the ways in which all of this disrupted things. And especially when we get these really efficient, but inflexible systems, like a lot of our shipping system was, um, these disruptions result in uh, really big changes. Uh, So, you know, you have these huge ships that can only dock at a few ports. Once that gets backed up, you can't really shift and adjust. And so that's, uh, I think for me just it, it a lot of it is seeing it play out where we see the fact that we have something that sets it all off but then we have the the response of the system or the structure that really creates the 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 day-to-day impact
5: I suspect a big part of kind of why we conceive popularly of of quote-unquote collapses in the past is based on as you talk about extensively in your book, the way in which we look at it kind of in fiction and in fiction, it's nearly always like the societal equivalent of a bullet in the head, right? You the zombie yeah. plague is out and then a couple of days, everything's fallen apart. Yeah. And the point that you make in this is that it's probably, I mean, it, this isn't exactly how you phrase, but it's probably better to look at it kind of like, it's like a tumor or something where the, pr- the, the things are set in motion that are going to lead to, to things falling apart much, much, um, at a point before a lot of people probably would have noticed it, you know, the yeah. the problem can be too far gone um, before it's really obvious. Um, and we, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think
8: that's that's a good point, and that's the that's really uh, something that you know, even uh, with COVID, uh, it, it it shows that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the 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 problems are not only the existence or the appearance of this virus, but you know, first of all, how did it appear? And that has to do with, um, you know, decreasing habitat for wild animals and the proximity of human populations to animals. And then we have uh, increased uh, sort of uh, uh, communication and travel, which, you know, is not a bad thing, obviously. Sure. Uh, but it is going to change uh, the way in which these things spread. Uh, but then we have the way that we divide ourselves up into nation states and the way in which we have, you know, economic systems that are working in certain ways. So, you know, the vaccine gets here but not there and 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 so forth. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, you know, the, that I think is at the heart of it. You have these things that have been set in place. You have these parameters in, uh, in which you're going to have to react, and they really set Um, uh, the stage for what's going to happen you know you have it's like looking backwards four or five moves in chess to see how did we get in this situation it's not just because of that last move it's because of the last 10 moves
5: yeah Yeah. and one of the things uh, you bring up that i like is that if you're looking for kind of a historical example of a collapse that that most mirrors the way we tend to look at it in fiction it would probably be what happened to the indigenous population of of particularly like North America yeah. um after the arrival of colonizers, which was by a lot of accounts, by like ninety percent of the population dead within a fairly short span of time, primarily from disease this this really rapid and cataclysmic um, um, shock, but also at the same time, as much as it does seem to mirror some of our, you know, kind of fictional depictions of, of viral outbreaks or other sort of of, of societal calamities, um, the ways in which people survived don't really, in any meaningful way, mirror the our our kind of popular fictional depiction of like who makes it out of that sort of a vi- situation. You know, the 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 strapping military veteran with a rifle and a stockpile of food or whatever. You know.
8: Yeah, yeah, that, that, you know, I, I would say that certainly having these skills to keep yourself sure. alive is important. And it is true that if you don't make it through the first 30 days, you're not going to make it through the next 30 years.
2: Mm-hmm.
8: But, um, yeah, the way people survive outside of a few days, perhaps, uh, when they're dealing with some of these, uh, what we would think of as survival situations, uh, is as a community. I mean, we see that with, uh, uh, you know, when we look at the the Native American history in North America, you know, uh, even as populations and entire groups were being uh, decimated by these diseases, sometimes 75% of a village uh, in a single winter from a wave or waves of disease, even in the, in the face of that, they reconstituted themselves as communities,
2: mm-hmm.
8: sometimes um, multi-ethnic or multicultural communities. I mean, there was a whole variety of ways in which people uh, regrouped. And I think that that, you know, that was the message. And, you know, part of the uh, this image of, you know, grabbing your bug out bag and heading out to the hills is um, it just doesn't work. Uh, yeah. you know, and, and the, the the stockpiling, you know, as well. Um, and so, yeah, when we look archaeologically, you know, we always see communities,
5: yeah. And that's something we really try to encourage people to do on this show. Where obviously, some amount of disaster preparation is, is not just helpful, but is, I think, kind of morally necessary if it's at all financially feasible for you. Yeah. You know, it, it is, you are. It is absolutely the right thing to do to try to have two, three weeks of of relatively storable food, some water, um, you know, some other emergency supplies. But kind of beyond that, as you said, that first like 30 days, if you actually want not just to live but to have, you know, life have any kind of meaning, um, you have to be thinking in a community-oriented situation.
8: Yeah, I mean because ultimately, you know, what's the difference between 2 weeks or 2 months worth of food? Right. You know, it's going to be gone and mm-hmm. you know you have to uh come back. You know, one of the things in in researching uh for this uh, for this book, one of the things I looked at was the the history of how we made a living uh and the the history of agriculture and one mm-hmm. of the things that you know, that I found was that the last time that humans lived where a significant portion of the population was uh, hunters and gatherers, that is not farmers, there was like one-fifteenth of the current population, you know, less than 500 million people Mm -hmm. in the world. So even a a catastrophic disaster that, you know, reduced us to 85% of, you know, 15% 15% of the current population, we're still going to have more people in the world than ever lived without mm-hmm. agriculture. And so we're going to have to uh, uh, recreate some of these systems. And, you know, agriculture, by and large, is going to be a community-based yeah. system. It's, uh, I mean, you can garden on your own, but uh, but the way that it needs to work is is going to be a collective
5: yeah and I I think um yeah this is we, we talk a lot about. I actually live with a couple of wilderness survival instructors and we have about an acre of land and we do a decent amount of 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 you know gardening, you know uh, animal husbandry and that sort of thing and it it has um I've I've spent a lot of my life on farms so I've kind of always had an appreciation for how much work it is. And and one of the things we try to talk about on this show regularly is the value of Even just having a garden of things like guerrilla gardening, not because I'm not one of those people who thinks that like, oh, we need to replace industrial agriculture with like individuals tending small gardens. That's not going to work, but because the more you kind of interface directly with the concept of growing food and with working with other people in order to do that, the more prepared you are for any number of things that could go wrong. Like even if those things don't involve a crunch in the food supply lines, the connections you make with people doing that sort of work will be more valuable than – an extra two months of stockpiles, you know, when you're in your food buckets or whatever, your Alex Jones yeah. dried food buckets. <laughs>
8: yeah, Well, that's, that's absolutely right. And, you know, one of the things that occurred to me looking into the past uh, at some of these, uh, you know, collapses or declines that had happened in the past was that a huge percent of the population um, uh, was engaged directly in agriculture. Mm-hmm. And, you know, here in the, it, well, in the industrialized world, is typically less than 5%, less than that even in the United States. Most people, like me, don't, uh, uh, don't engage in it. And, you know, I know something about gardening, perhaps, like everybody else. But, you know, I'm not a farmer. I don't really have that collective wisdom. And if I had to do that, um, you know, Probably it's like a lot of other things. When everything's easy, it's not so bad. Yeah, when, yeah. It, goes, when it goes bad, it really helps to know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, everything goes bad sooner or later. And so um, you know that's that kind of uh, uh, thing very important. you know, and I think also uh, there could certainly local systems and uh, some flexible scale, would be really important, you know, so I'm also like you, a proponent of, mm-hmm. of of this sort of thing, you know, if we can get everybody to participate in ways that we aren't now, that'll give us some flexibility. What if what if we do have supply chain problems? Mm-hmm. Well, we have a number of people in the community that are already doing some of this stuff that could maybe be uh, expanded or get us through this period. So, yeah.
5: Yeah, I mean, even if you're not like dealing with everyone's caloric needs, it could be as simple as because of where you're located, you know, when when the oranges and other kind of fruits aren't able to come in from a supply line thing, there's a, a shortage of vitamin C. And then knowing how to yeah. make tea out of pine needles or whatever, or what kind of plants have a lot of vitamin C, you know, even though you're not, you're not focused on meeting everyone's, you know, entire caloric needs through small scale farming, but you can deal with the, a nutrient deficiency or something because you understand your environment a little bit better.
8: Yeah. And, and, you know, probably quality of life issues, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, for, uh, you know, kids and, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of there's lots of ways you can survive that are pretty miserable. Yeah. So you want to you want to try to uh, 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 direct it towards those that are desirable. And I think part of that's having this flexibility, having this knowledge, having a lot of people involved in things. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in, in in my book are ideas of, you know, diversity and inclusion, which we talk about in certain ways now. And often, I think, unfortunately, it's talked about as if it's done to benefit the people that are marginalized and left out uh, only. And mm-hmm. while it is partly that. It benefits everybody, of course. I mean, anyone in a business knows. Anybody in a university knows uh, the, the benefits of of uh, diversity. In the same way, anybody that's trying to do something understands the benefit of a diverse range of experiences.
2: Mm-hmm.
8: You know, that's why we make these multidisciplinary teams that go out and do things. Uh, you know, it's so that you have this, this wide variety that, that can help you keep going.
5: Yeah. Now, one of the things that I really found fascinating in your book and that that kind of made me feel a little bit um bad is I you know I've I've spent a lot of time thinking about the what happened what was done to and what also just kind of happened as a result of the way diseases spread when when colonizers reached North America. I had never really devoted that much thought to the actual actions that in different indigenous groups took consciously to prevent, to protect themselves from the spread of diseases. You mentioned the Cherokee in particular um, in your book. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Cause that's something, and as soon as I read it, I marked that page cause I'm like, I need to look up what the studies he's referencing. Cause I, I, I don't know anything about this.
8: Yeah, that um, you know, a lot of that stems from the research of, of some other archeologists mm-hmm. and they um, you know you're exactly right, we don't think about that. We're not taught about it that way. You know, we sort of have this this contradictory and sort of uh, um, uh, doubly problematic way of talking about this. First, for a long time, we denied uh, sort of the, the how traumatic and and how much of a genocide it was when Europeans uh, arrived. Um, and then, after denying that, mm-hmm. we sort of say, "Well, Native Americans are gone and no longer mm-hmm. relevant, so we can cease to talk about them." Uh, of course, um, that's not true. And one of the things that we see when we look more in detail at the histories, or we listen to the oral histories, or we look at the archaeology, is that there are a number of things that uh, that that people did and do to. Um, uh, uh, to create the outcomes that they want. And that was no different for the Native American groups. You know, I mean, they had ways of dealing with disease and some of them will be, uh, will be able to understand it via our sort of uh, our system, right? Isolating people, uh, cleanliness, uh, minimizing contact, especially with sort of problematic groups like the colonizers. you know, but in other ways, there are things that are going to be uh, unfamiliar to us, and we're not going to see the effectiveness or the value in it. But one of the things that that all of these things did, that these groups were doing, was created uh, or maintained uh, uh, group identity and cohesion, and uh, allowed the perseverance of of community. And so there are um, you know, it's it's easy to think about people as sort of passive victims of something, especially uh, when it serves your purpose to to think about it in these ways. And we just see that it's it's not the case,
5: yeah. There was a remarkable moment in the book. And I, I think it was from when you were in Honduras where you you talk about, you're finding pottery sherds and they have these specific kind of markings on them from, I don't know, like a thousand years ago or so. And you also know a local woman who's a potter and she's putting the same markings on and you ask her why. And her answer is like, well, because the the pottery sherds that we find from our ancestors have those on them. And my, my initial thought was like, oh, what what a shame that she doesn't know what those originally meant. But then I thought like, well, but... Is that any different from like all of the different things that that I do because they're traditions, because like they're things that like people a thousand years ago in, in in my line did? Like, no, it's not. Like it's it's just what people do. And it is a continuation. And it's a very there's um that's a that's that's survival, you know? That's that's conscious survival.
8: Yeah, yeah. You know, and and in that case, of course, whatever it meant initially, it now means that to her. Mm-hmm. Right. So there's the meaning, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and, and so it, it's, it's interesting, you know, one of the things, you know, I, I'm from and I live in Kentucky. And one of the things, especially when uh, people come to say Appalachians, they're looking mm-hmm. for sort of authentic Appalachian Kentucky. Sure. You know, um, and they already have an idea of what that is. And if you don't see it, Because that's not really what people do. Then the response is never, oh, my ideas about what is authentic Mm. might be erroneous. It's, I wonder why I didn't see authentic Appalachians. You know, it's like, well, you did. But, you know, there's going to be more hip hop and punk groups than there are bluegrass groups. Because, you know, these are 18, 20 year old kids, that's, you know, they're doing this as much as this other stuff and, um, uh, you know, more probably. And so that that is something uh, um, that that I think of often as an archaeologist. You know, my focus is in the past, but if I'm going to understand things, of course, you also have to understand how are people thinking about it in the present and how am I thinking about it in the present? Because, you know, uh, everything, all the stories I tell about the past are coming out of, are coming out of my experience in the present too mm. and it's hard to uh, it's hard to separate those and really the best we can do is try to um you know reflect on that and see how is it that i might be limiting my understanding because of my particular experience
5: and, and one of the things i really like about your book that i also found fascinating so it's, i you know i i for a while did um conflict journalism and before when when that was just a An ambition of mine before I started to do it, I would see the articles that were being written by all these war correspondents, and I would just be in awe of like, how did they get that story? How did they get that access? How did they, they must have put so much work in. And then when I actually got there, I realized like, oh no, they met, they made a contact with a local who was good at it, and that person showed them around and made all these connections. And like, actually none of this work happens without these local fixers. And you make the point that in archaeology, you're not generally discovering things like even when you're finding shipwrecks it's because these sailors who lived nearby were like, well, yeah, there a bunch of shipwrecks over there. <laughs>
2: like,
5: yeah, This is yeah. where you're going to go find them. You know,
8: it's yeah. always the way it is, you know, mm-hmm. there, um, um, in the example you're talking about, I was part of this project in Fourni in Greece, which, you know, made the news because we found so many shipwrecks there, mm-hmm. something ultimately like 50 shipwrecks wow. around this Island. Um, and almost all of them were shown to us by local folks, uh, you know, that sponge divers or uh, people that were fishers or, you know, people that were out on the water all the time. And the few that we found by ourselves, I'm sure people knew about them. We just stumbled on them before somebody had a chance to to show us. It's the same way in in the Honduras when mm-hmm. we would be walking through the the rainforest and. You know, maybe we'd been walking for a week, so we're way out in the middle of this place. People were constantly telling me the guys that I was with would say, Okay, if we go up this creek, you know, for about six hours and we go over here, here's what we'd find. Here's what we'd find over here. Here's what we'd find over here. They knew where everything was. Um, and that's, you know, one of the things that you, uh, uh, uh the, that you learn is, you know, how reliant you are on. On, on people that live in a place. I mean, they just know it.
5: Yeah. There's no, um, when you get right down to it, as, as obsessed as we are kind of in in the Western canon with the idea of lost cities, um, mm-hmm. that's not really a thing that tends to happen. Um, yeah. No, no, um, no,
8: it's not. And, and in fact, most of the archeological sites that people didn't know about it was just because they were so small and ephemeral that no one mm-hmm. really paid attention anything yeah there's no lost city mm-hmm. they're they're always known to somebody
5: well chris i think that's that's most of what i wanted to get into in this conversation i'm wondering before we kind of close out because you you are both the author of this book the next apocalypse which is i think a fascinating way of looking at the idea of things falling apart and a wilderness survival instructor. Mm-hmm. If you're going to suggest people, you know, a, a practical kit bag to prepare for short and kind of long-term problems, what yeah. are you, what are you putting in your bag?
8: Well, you know, there's the two main things uh, that you're always going to want is, is uh, a knife because that right. allows you to make a lot of other things and a way to start fire. You know, and we've all seen in the movies, rubbing sticks together and, you know, friction methods and that works. Yeah. And you can do that, but it is incredibly difficult to do pain in the butt, (laughs) you know, and for most of us that don't do it all the time. uh, You're just not going to be able to do it when it's 40 degrees and raining and you really need a fire, you know, you'll be able to do it when it's 100 degrees and dry, you know, uh, because everything's about to catch on fire anyway. (laughs) But, uh, you know, so, um, and what would, what would that look like? Well, uh, you need something that will catch on fire pretty quickly, and the thing I always take is cotton balls. You know, if you take cotton balls and a disposable lighter or one of those uh, uh, fire starter sticks that'll make sparks, um, that, those cotton balls will catch fire instantly and if you take one and you coat half of it with petroleum jelly, then not only will it catch fire it'll burn you know for you know a minute or so long enough to catch other stuff on fire so you know making fire and having some sort of cutting tool are the very basic things but um you know the uh, uh beyond that I would say uh you know clothing or some sort of shelter is is the other thing, you know, exposure to elements will kill you quicker than anything. And so, uh, having some way to uh, to protect yourself, and that's usually going to be, you know, first line of defense going to be your clothes. And one of the things that that you'll know, uh, anybody that that deals with uh, sort of survival uh, situations, is that most people that really get in trouble with things like hypothermia. You know it's not when it's thirty degrees below and they're out doing something it's when it's fifty degrees and sunny and they're out in a t-shirt during the day and then at night it drops to thirty degrees and uh you know they're stuck out somewhere uh, with without proper clothing that's that is when things get really dangerous so you know I would say you know if you can have some way to start fire some sort of knife and appropriate clothes for spending the night out you know then then uh and you're probably in pretty good shape for most yeah. situations. Yeah. You
5: know? Well, Chris, thank you so much for talking with with us today. Chris Begley, underwater archaeologist, author of The Next Apocalypse: The Art of Science and Survival. Chris, is there anything you'd like else you'd like to say or kind of get into before we we close out for the day?
8: No, just thank you very much for Uh, For reading the book and for uh, reaching out to talk with me, because I think that, you know, especially now as we go into sort of an uncertain uh, future, I mean, future is always uncertain, I suppose, but uh, um, as, you know, we're really recognizing some of these challenges, you know, I I really am hoping that this sort of um, uh, uh, community-based idea uh, becomes the way we think about things. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean it's easy or that we're going to like it. It doesn't mean that that's what I want. I mean, tell you the truth, I would love it if it was just me out in the woods with my family. You know, I can do that. It's much harder to be part of a community and make things work for a big group of people. But that's just the way it's going to be.
5: Yeah, and that's you know? that's ultimately the way in which you have a lot more real security because I, I yeah. think. um uh, I think people, I don't know. The, the 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 world seems so complex and messy that it's easy to imagine that that safety comes from getting away from the world. But historically, yeah. that's just not how it works.
8: No, the world finds you. You know, yeah. Uh, it's the best being part of a group is is always best, and your uh, your little group can never defend against the big group i mean if we want to put it in those terms you know you can't just hoard everything and uh um, just doesn't work might work for a little while but uh yeah so that you know that for me that's the message i'm hoping uh, uh, people take from that.
5: well thank you very much chris uh for those of you listening at home again please do check out the next apocalypse the art and science of survival by chris begley That's going to do it for us all today. Chris, thank you again, and have a wonderful day.
8: You too. Thank you, Rob.
1: more info now.
4: Oh boy!
5: It could happen here. That's the name of the podcast. And I'm Robert Evans, the guy hosting the podcast. Who else is with me? Is it is it Garrison?
6: Hello, good morning, afternoon, evening,
5: whatever. Garrison Davis? Yep. Not yet a Dr. Garrison Davis? Not
6: yet. Soon soon to be Dr. Garrison Davis, we'll but see. that's a story we'll for see. another time. I don't know
5: if you're going to pass the, the exam that I know you're going to have to pass in order to, to get through this class, but... Uh, yeah, uh-huh. uh, sure. <laughs> it's a little teaser for the future. Speaking of the future, this is a podcast about the ways in which the future is going to be real fucked up and ways in which maybe we could try to make it less fucked up. Um, and today we have on a guest, uh, Mr. Calvin Norman, who posted a thread on our subreddit with the very simple, very unsettling title, The Woods Are Bad. Um, And Calvin, you want to introduce yourself, your credentials, and and what you were trying to get across in that thread, because I found it very affecting.
9: Yeah, thanks, Robert. So uh, my name's, like like you said, Calvin Norman. I I work in forestry. I've worked in forestry for a while now. I used to be uh, an industrial forester in the Great Lakes region, so like Wisconsin, Michigan. Then I worked in the southeast, I did my master's down there, and uh, now I'm in the mid-Atlantic. So I've, I've kind of been around the eastern United States. I haven't gotten out west yet, but, and uh, I'm a certified forest, or Canada-certified forest, i got like a year left on that, so been around. I also do wildlife stuff, it's pretty fun.
5: And yeah, your, your thread, what, what I found interesting about it, I have a good friend who is in forestry, or was in forestry at least, and, and got their degree in that, and we were, we were out hunting in the Cascades a little earlier, or a little later last year. Um, And there's this wonderful moment. We've been following a game trail up like this steep hillside. And there was kind of a clearing where we were a clear cut, but there's deep brush all around. And we get to the top of this thing. We look out and we just see, you know, these these rolling mountains of the Cascades all covered in this the the most this lush, beautiful greenery, all these these pine trees and everything. And my friend says to me, it's going to be totally different in 20 years. Um, it's already a different forest than the one I grew up with, and and that that is that is kind of the cliff's notes of what what you're you're getting into a lot of detail here. And I'm wondering if you could just kind of like, yeah, start on at that. Explain kind of what's actually happening uh, in our woods, or at least the woods that that you're comfortable talking about here. It's a big continent. Well,
9: yeah, yeah, it is a big continent, and you, you have a pretty good international base. And I I can't speak for the Europeans or the Canadians. There's mm. a whole different ballgame over there. And tropical stuff is just wild. Yeah, really cool, but wild stuff. Uh, So mainly talk about the U.S., mainly eastern United States. So if you look at the eastern United States, this is a forest that has never existed before in the history of the United States. Um, Preview, you know, prior to like 1920, our forest was like, depending on the source you read, between 20 and 50 percent chestnut uh, with other species mixed in there. And now we have a mainly oak-dominated forest. And we lost all of our chestnut due to chestnut blight. Um, out west, you've you got a couple of other things going on, but fire suppression has just, just changed the forest there. Uh, same here in the East Coast and in the Midwest. You know, you used to see a lot more fires going through. I mean, some of that was lightning strikes, but no doubt a lot of it was, you know, intentionally set by the First Nations and the people before the people that we think of as the First Nations. And, um, you know, that has mainly disappeared, except for the Southeast, where... Fire never really stopped being in the ground, which is really cool. But even their species composition has changed dramatically. Um, a lot of what we're seeing is, you know, changes in human management. But there's also a number of invasive species that have changed things, you know, like chestnut blight, emerald ash borer, Asian longhorn beetle is coming in. You know, those are just the pests, the understory and, you know, plants is a whole different ballgame. Um, it's this it's all not great. It's all not great. I was uh, talking with some colleagues at an agricultural show right before I posted that, and we were talking about how the woods were bad. And um, we very easily laid out a scenario where we lost the most of our remaining dominant tree species. It was not at all hard to do. It took about two minutes. So not great. Uh, And then the West Coast, things aren't great either.
5: And when you're talking about when you're talking about losing these species and stuff like the chestnut blight, where is that coming from? How much of that is sort of as a result of you know climate change? Like we're having a lot of tree species have trouble here in the West because of, of how much hotter the summers are and how much drier things have gotten. So how much, how much of what you're seeing where you are is because there's been changes to the climate and how much of it is, you know, I guess kind of like globalism. Like people bringing in pests and bringing in blights and stuff from other areas and it, it spreads like wildfire.
9: Well, I think that we're just starting to see the beginning of climate change, like driving species, you know, up the mountain, off the mountain, out west and here, you know, out of certain regions, you know, as things are getting hotter and drier or as, you know, climates are becoming more extreme, you know, here in uh, the mid Atlantic, we had one of the wettest years on record, I think it was like five or seven, whereas in the Midwest, they had droughts. But before that, we had two years of drought. So, you know, it's, it's more extreme. And that's that's just starting to take part. But the extinctions and near extinctions have been mainly due to non-native pests. Um, and that's just most of it right there. Um, just because we haven't really seen the start of climate change. Yeah, but it yeah. it's impacting diseases. So like out west with the mountain pine beetle, you're seeing more generations of mountain pine beetle come through. I was just doing a presentation for some folks in uh, South Dakota. And something like a third of their total forest was impacted by mountain
5: pine beetle. Jeez. And and what is that, like, when you actually talk about this these beetles coming in, that's the kind of thing that, e- even as we've gotten more comfortable talking about sort of, of, of the different kind of collapses spawned by climate change, I think that they, we tend to imagine more spectacular things, these giant sweeping fires that burn through huge chunks of states, and these these huge, like, environmental calamities. What is this like? What happens when one of these beetles hits a forest? One of these beetle species, obviously not like a singular beetle. Like what? What is actually like? Ha- how quick is the effect, and and what kind of comes after that? Like I I, I know there's sort of a shockwave. It's kind of like a bomb going off. I'm interested in kind of tracing the root of that explosion, if that makes sense.
9: Yeah. So it it depends species to species. Chestnut plague was really fast, and it just seems to have torn through the chestnut native range. So chestnut went from Florida to to Maine. And out west, like Tennessee kind of area there. Um, and it just, you know, in like something like 15 years, the entire species is gone. Emerald ash borer is taken a little bit longer. It got here in the 80s, started kind of going off in the mid 2000s, and it's killed a couple of billion trees. So when that hits a small forest, you know, if it's a if it's a pretty, you know, beetle that kills pretty fast, like emerald ash borer, it gets into your trees. It starts with one or two, and then within four or five years, it's it's in most of them in a forest. And then with emerald ash borer, they're dead in five. Um, hemlock woolly adelgid is pretty similar. It'll just show up one day in a stand, and then the hemlocks are dead within five seven years. Uh, and you know sometimes you know what's going on, you know, because emerald ash borer is very clear signs. And other times you don't know what's going on because the, the tree can't be so tall, and all of a sudden the trees are getting thinner and thinner, and then they're dead. Or you have pests like um, oak wilt, and that and that trees are dead you know, in two months, and then it, it spreads out like a circle, you know, it kind of exactly, when you see like a bacteria, like growth medium with the bacteria spreading out, that's how oak spreads. And it's just like trees are dead, you know, two months and they spread out and out and out. And it's scary sometimes.
5: Is there anything that can be, I mean, it sounds like with, with most of these cases, like with what's happened to kind of like the chestnuts and it, it, it's it's too late for a lot of that. Is there anything that can actually be done to stop this? Like, I know we have all these... Structures in place to try to stop the spread of invasive species, but like once they're in there, it kind of seems like usually we're fucked.
9: Yeah. Yep. That. that oh, would be okay. Fair. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Once you get past, like there's, there's what's called the invasive species establishment curve. So it's an S mm-hmm. curve, and once you get like right, like once it starts ticking up, it's like oh well, we're done here. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's let's start thinking about the future. And uh, nice. as you lose more species, it's like oh, what do we do here? Or if you're like you know in the case of, case of ash, it's like this ash is going in a swamp. I have nothing else that's going to grow here. So uh, now I just have an open wetland, like I can't grow any native trees here. We're, we're done. So the biggest thing is prevention. Like don't bring invasive species in or non-native species in. I was uh, talking to a lady a couple of weeks ago, and she uh, has emerald or not. She has hemlock, woolly adelgid on her property, and she brought in a biocontrol, or she assumed it was a biocontrol from Japan. It's a beetle, and released no, no. it. Yeah, in this case, it was one that had been tested and failed because it doesn't make it through the winter. But, you know, stuff like that. It's like, just just don't do that. You know, I yeah. appreciate the thought there, but don't. With some of these species, we have, you know, you know like hemlock adult, we have pesticides that work really well and that you apply them all to the tree. And so it's like, all right, I treated this tree. This tree's good for seven years. Some of them, like emerald ash borer, you're done. There's just nothing you can do. So, hmm. yeah, it's uh, prevention, prevention. And then, and- then you can quarantine, but. Then you know and it's like we're, this county's done, so we're going to just try to make sure that only this county dies. Oh jeez!
5: You mentioned a bit earlier, like thinking about the future. What does that actually look like when when we hit a situation as we have with a lot of these species? We're like, all right, well this shit's we ain't we ain't stopping this. What is what like? What, what do people like you do next? Like, what is the next kind of step for the forests, or is it just sort of a smoke them while you got them kind of thing?
9: Uh, sometimes it's smoke them while you got them. So like beach bark disease is going through just roasting beach in the East coast. It's going, it's going to the Midwest. And so there, it's kind of like, well, you know, if it's in there and your beach are dying, take them out. And if they're not, don't there's it's 99% fatal, but there's 1% that can make it. So, you know, like maybe we find that 1% emerald ash borer is 99% fatal, but I've seen, you know, in the past couple of years, I've seen two that made it. So like, if we don't cut them all, maybe some will survive. Yeah,
5: theoretically, so. we could then like clone or breed or whatever the trees that live and in a few generations have more of them. Um,
9: yeah. If other it, shit
5: doesn't happen.
9: <laughs> yeah, the chestnut project's been going on for the last hundred years and it, it looks like it'll take another 40 more. It's That's a controversial opinion. Some people say it's going to be faster than 40, but you know, hey, tell yeah, me about 100 that. 100 years. Oh, the chestnut foundation? Really, it's a really neat thing. So there were some chestnuts that were found resistant in some plant outside the range of chestnut blight. And so the ideas were they slowly started backbreeding. So they crossed in Chinese chestnut, which is resistant to the blight, which is native to China and East Asia. And so they they crossed them in with the remaining chestnut with the hopes of, you know, kind of eventually breeding out the Chinese, but just maintaining the American chestnut and just getting that gene in there. And so they started that back in like the 30s and 40s when they realized what was happening. Well, you know, today is 2022 and Mm -hmm. we are. Still without, you know, American chestnut in the forest. There are some backbred versions that are more resistant, but they will still get infected. I've been to a couple of chestnut nurseries where they're doing experiments and it's it's sad because they'll they'll get up and then they'll die. They'll get up uh, and they'll gosh. die. And it's like, oh there's two. Look, there are two over there in the corner that made it. And those get, you know, onto the next one. But there is some work out of uh New York SUNY in New York where they um altered a chestnut and they put in um they they just they just change the gene so the you know version that the gene that makes ch- chestnut blight resistant is in that and that's getting approved by the EPA FDA and USDA. Um, hopefully that gets approved. If that gets approved, we get real we get real further along because the resistant trees are not the same as the American chestnut. The resistant trees are more they're shorter and more shrubby and they don't fulfill the overstory canopy role that chestnut used to play. Um, that's that's best case scenario. Worst case scenario is you're like um butternut which was you know driven to functional extinction at the same time and we're just nowhere on that. Purdue's working on some stuff but it's nowhere. They they're not in the woods.
5: Now hey how, how much of like cuz I I tend to roll my eyes pretty hard when we're we're talking particularly about climate change and people are like well I think that science is going to save our asses from this one we're going to we're going to develop some like miraculous carbon capture method and like at the last minute we'll 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 be able to reverse everything and it'll be fine i tend to roll my eyes at that but this and maybe i'm not obviously i don't understand this at nearly the level you do is this kind of a thing where if there's hope for a lot of these species and a lot of these biomes it's going to be in stuff like we figure out how to hack these trees to keep them alive and and like is is that really kind of where we are
9: I know some very good tree geneticists and tree breeders, but I, I don't think that they have the capabilities of, you know, coming up with trees that are resistant to all of the various fungi and yeah. bugs that are out there. And even if they do, it's, you know, you have to get them out into the woods. You have to plant, we have like 740 million acres of forest. You got to get them out into the woods. You have to have the nurseries to get them out. There's, you know, even if you were able to create trees that were resistant to all of these pests, it would be impossible. So No the, only, no, well, the only answer is uh don't don't do climate change and to the the carbon capture perspective um, the only machine that's going to capture uh, the amount of carbon we need are trees yeah I do I do forest carbon stuff which is a whole different episode
5: I want to I mean I'm, I'm very I'm extremely interested in that because obviously like we've we've been supported by a couple of, of companies who like one of the things they do to try to be nice is they'll they'll plant trees and stuff which is not useless but also a lot of people do think that that's what rebuilding a forest is. And like, no, forests are a huge part of the problem with why the West is so flammable is we chop down all these trees and we grew back just the trees um, to chop them down again. And that turns out to not be resilient at all to anything because trees do not live on their own ever.
9: Yeah, that's why it's a forest. It's not just, <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right, yeah. No, it's, yeah, That's that's a, yeah, planting, there's not the infrastructure to plant our way out of climate change. There's not the land. It's just impossible. And so even even if the even if there were the infrastructure in the land, that we don't have the time. Because, you know, trees take time to grow. They work on a different time scale than humans do. Even your so, your shortest lived tree is 60, 80 years.
5: Yeah, and it is one of those things where I mean we we have this is what we taught we kind of started this new season, which is forever with, which is that like There's no – there's nothing we can do that will stop us from continuing to face worse and worse, like, consequences of climate change because the carbon's already been emitted, right? You can't just pull it out. Warming is going – even if we were to, like, make very revolutionary changes tomorrow, there's still some degree to which it's going to get worse. Um, But when it comes to, like, within your field, what – like, carbon capture using trees and stuff, can you talk to us about, like, what that actually looks like as opposed to sort of the we'll plant a tree for every dollar you spend kind of thing?
9: Um, so yeah, I actually, I actually can. It's, I do a lot of my work about carbon, forest carbon stuff. So yeah, basically the idea is to make sure you have the, the best way to get carbon sequestration of the forest is to have a healthy functioning forest. And that's, you know, kind of where these pests and climate change are interfering with that. And so, you know, to maintain a healthy functioning forest on the East coast, you you some of these, you need to have fire. Some of them not, some of them are too wet to burn. Uh, and then you know harvesting needs to take place in some of these some of these don't need to be harvested again we're talking you know millions of acres of you know forest here so we're going to be incredibly broad and we got to keep invasives out you need to keep forest pests to a minimum and then make sure that you're managing the forest you know as best as it can be managed and i say manage this is not something new humans have been on the east coast since you know it depends on the artifacts you want to look at and what archaeologists you want to trust but like 25 to 20,000 years ago. And the last glaciers left the East Coast 18,000 years ago. So we had people here before the glaciers were gone. So these forests have never not had humans' hands on them and never not been touched and managed by humans. Um, And, you know, we got to make sure we're doing the best we can. You know, some of that means that we're managing forests with what's best for the, you know, that means managing forests for what's best with the forest in mind, not with what's best for the end of the quarter, what's best for your, you know, bank account. That's hard to do because forests are getting more and more expensive to manage and to manage sustainably. Here in the East Coast, we gotta do a lot of fencing. We gotta keep deer out of forests because their populations are so high. It's just ridiculously high. And they're never gonna come back down. You know, we have to spray invasive species, we have to pull invasive species, you gotta go through and you gotta make sure, you know, you're you're preventing all this kinds of stuff. And so it could take, you know, you can, if you do a a good shelter wood, you can like make forty thousand dollars out of it and then you could put all of that money back into growing your next generation of force. So for is really going from a profit making venture in a lot of cases to like you're barely making money or you're you're like breaking even or losing money. It's it's no longer you know, if you really want to do it great, you're not always making money, which is hard for people to like, get their head around.
5: Yeah. I mean it's the kind of thing that in a reasonable world, huge amounts of money would be diverted to from other things, like I don't know. Yeah, F thirty fives. Yeah. Um I feel like you guys could do a lot with one F thirty five worth of cash.
9: I feel um, like that would solve almost all of our problems. Yeah. Because the problems that you see in forestry don't cost a lot to fix, but it, it costs a lot for a forest owner, be that you know an agency or a person. It costs yeah. a lot.
6: Yeah, it's like all of the issues around climate change kind of all circle around like growth based economics. And a lot of the, like no, nothing has a shared root cause but they all have this similar aspect to them where yeah every every part of them gets worse by the extreme focus on economic growth at all costs and that suffers that that, that makes everything and everyone suffer so you know it would be nice if since we have a government it would be nice if they what do you know give more funding towards uh stuff like this type of forest management which I know they do some but you know a fraction of it compared to what they give to like the pentagon or you know et cetera et cetera et cetera
9: I mean even big you know forestry is technically agriculture but even like you know like corn and like row agriculture gets a lot more
6: yeah more they, have, they have corn has massive subsidies compared to, compared to everything else
9: yeah like the NRCS the natural resources conservation service they do a lot with you know farm agriculture and you know they, it's very difficult for forest owners to get that kind of money into forests. If we could get, you know, that money, it would be a game changer, but we're not there. Uh, there is some change being made in the administration, but, you know, that's like 2022, 2024 stuff, and that doesn't help, doesn't help today. It doesn't slow down pests today. You know, you can't unkill trees.
5: Yeah. I, I guess, is there anything that you're optimistic about within your field right now. Like if you, it, I, I, I think that would be handy both in terms of like, is there any sort of, is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Um, because, uh, it, I'll admit like when I think about not having the forests, that's pretty much the most black pilling thing I can imagine. Like for myself, like that's the, that's the thing that I have trouble coping with emotionally more than anything else. There's lots of horrible things about what's coming, but that's the one that like really scares me the most.
9: Yeah. I don't think we're going to lose forests as a thing. They're just going to become, you know, if without things being done, they're going to become less, they're going to be fewer of them and they're going to become much less diverse and functioning. You know, for a lot of these, you know, invasive species, be they plants, you know, especially invasive plants, we have a lot of, we know how to control them. I was just writing a thing about controlling wavy basket grass, wavy leaf basket grass. It's a new invasive species to my area. It's highly controllable, and we know how to do it. It's just, again, a question of people, you know, getting out there and money to do it. You know, if we have the people and the money, we could solve that problem. Oh, also, if we stop, you know, bringing that in, that'd be even better. We, you know, actually took, you know, IPM, or not IPM, but um, quarantine and pest management seriously. And, you know, people, like, stopped throwing... You know the local like plant out into the park just because like I don't want to kill it like let's let it be free. Don't do that. Goldfish don't don't throw them in the lake. <laughs> That's why you have huge goldfish coming out of Lake Florida. Don't don't just cut pets loose and stuff like that. And if we can yeah. get a lot of that under control, we'll be in a lot better place. I, again, I don't think they're forced to disappearing in the future unmanaged. I think they just become fewer, less diverse, and less functional. Yeah. And then you lose species species based on them like birds, you know, well, wildlife, all that kind of stuff.
5: And also, I mean, one of the things that also they have to become less accessible, both because there will be less of demand um, as things get more fragile. Like, how else do you keep some of these invasive species out, but keeping people out, which is, I think, a bad move for a lot of reasons. But I, I don't know. I also don't know, like, to, to is it possible to have a global society where there is not just trade, but the movement of people on a wide scale and not have this kind of shit crossing right like that's when i think about as, as someone who's more or less an anarchist when i think about the only things that a border should exist to do it's it's keep stuff like that out but i just i don't know how possible that is like a lot of this stuff is i mean it, it, is this the kind of thing that's just spread by carelessness because it kind of seems like it can be spread too by people who think they're taking care
9: yeah and both is the answer uh there's some very good research out there about the you know, relatedness between global trade and, you know, invasive species. But that also you look at like colonialism and colonial societies. There were these things called inter, uh, introductory societies. Ooh, I'm getting the name wrong, but basically they're clubs. It's like, all right, I would like uh, clubs of people. Like I would like to see you yes. know, this new place that I live in, like the old place, like the European starling was introduced in New York. Cause you know, uh, one guy wanted to see all the birds of Shakespeare in Jesus America. Christ. Oh, I get an even better for one for you the uh moth formerly known as gypsy moth the only time i'm going to say that word um is is now found in america because of this one guy uh i'll put the name in the chat for you so you can say it because i know how much you love saying uh french names
2: oh ha ha yeah. this guy's one of the here most french Pierre
6: names leopold ever. here comes a wave of comments about our anti-french racism
9: oh no no this, Can't this, be racist this, this guy this guy deserves french. it
2: <laughs> yeah
6: oh yeah, i know this, it doesn't matter we yeah. still get the <laughs>
9: <laughs> okay, well, this which
5: nobody does it. about my Italian accent. No, bafflingly. it is.
6: It's just the French.
5: It's just mm-hmm. the French. But once again, yeah. the Italians deserve it as well. Yeah. No, uh, <laughs> please they tell that. us about Etienne.
9: Yeah. So, so this guy, uh, he was a he's a French scientist who who left France. He came to the U.S. for a little while. He hung out in Massachusetts. He was also also an amateur entomologist. Oh boy. And he was like, oh, you know what I think America okay. needs is I think they need a silk industry. Now they have a native silk moth <laughs> that doesn't produce good silk and it doesn't breed fast. So he brought in the uh, le- Lematria, I, I gotta do the scientific name because we changed the name on it because the common name is a slur. So we're not doing yeah. that. So Lematria dispara. Uh, so, okay. so he brought this, this moth in from Europe uh, and he, he started trying to breed these two moths, which are not related at all. It didn't <laughs> work obviously. And then he just kind of, you know, he, went, he went off to be an astronomer and he just let these moths go in his backyard. And he didn't tell anyone they were there. And then all of a sudden <laughs> these things escape and now they're killing trees, you know, across the eastern United States and they're in Washington, Oregon. I think they're in oh, BC a little bit too. Great Yeah. So it I, yeah. That's
6: that's 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 such a good parable, like a, a parallel to the invasive species that is French people. That yeah. really really does yeah. just tie up mm-hmm. <laughs> all all aspects of that. Yeah, amazing.
5: I uh, it yeah. makes me think a lot everything you're saying about kudzu, which which is in the, I, I've heard some people say they're getting a handle on it. I don't know how to evaluate that at the moment, but when I was last living down there, it was just like devouring the entire Southeast.
9: <laughs> yeah, you can handle it again if you want to spray it. Or yeah. You, you, can, you can get what's called a chew groove, so a bunch of goats. You can get a handle on it, but again, that's money and effort. So mm-hmm. it's just a question. Although of the-
5: you do get delicious, delicious goat meat.
9: Oh my gosh. The, I tell you what, the people who do goat invasive management, they have it made. Would they do yeah. is they rent goats out to people. They get paid for the goats. Oh. And they also get their goats fed. So when they slaughter them, they didn't even pay. That, you know, that's a good business model. As Save someone with
5: a couple of goats, that does sound like the dream. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh,
9: God. And they don't work on all the invasive species. I do. There are folks. No, they probably who don't eat
5: those species. beetles, huh?
9: No, no, they also don't like plants with thorns on them either. No. So. And it's
5: very few goats can handle an entire French person either. So really <laughs> yeah, we can't we can't trust the goats to solve all these problems for us. It is nice that they're helping. Um I don't know. So I I try to are there things either in terms of like it acts people can take or probably more more realistically organizations people could support that you think are actually helping try to stop as much of the woods from going bad as fast or or reverse the the uh, some of the stuff we've been talking about today like how can we we try to have some some room for people to do something if if there is anything people can do other than check your fucking shoes for beetles when you come back (laughs) from wherever burn all of your clothing anytime you leave the state okay
9: that's that's a good start that's a really good start not even to say sometimes it's the county Mm-hmm. Go stop.
5: When you go on a road trip, you stop your car at the county line and you roll it off of a cliff. <laughs> Fill it with tannerite and just let it burn.
9: But don't, don't push that into the woods. We've seen that how that Not works Not into
5: the that's woods, no. Bad. No, into the ocean oh. where everything's fine.
6: Yeah, <laughs> that's, what they say. that's what they say about the ocean. Hey, going, I, going
9: great. I tell, I tell people I work between the farm field and the stream. I don't do stream or water stuff because there's chemistry in there, so I don't know what happens over there. Mm-hmm. That's fine. I so, assume everything is great there.
5: It does but, seem to be going fine.
9: Yeah. <laughs> um, I think the best thing that you could do as an individual is, is don't cut random stuff loose. Learn the plants of your area. Yeah. Just, like, learn what's around you and what should be there. And like when you see something that shouldn't be there and you know it's an invasive, remove it where legally possible. Obviously, don't go into like someone's like arboretum and like like pulling plants out. No, that'd be real bad. <laughs> Burn um,
5: down small farms wherever you yeah. find them. <laughs>
9: Oh man, the egg people would not be happy about that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say anything. Um, So I think, you know, learn plants, trees is neat. Um, And then if you, um, you know, think of, if you're thinking about like, you know, how can you help manage forests, You know, if you, lots of people either own forests or know people who own forests and, you know, encourage them to get a forest management plan or land management plan and get that. And then also if you got a lawn, rip your lawn out again where possible and use mm-hmm. native plants. I do, I do some ant, you know, some lawn change stuff. And it's just frustrating the amount of lawns out there. It's like, you know, one of these people, one of these reasons we're losing so many, you know, birds and we have fewer birds and bird species. Cause like they, they they can't eat grass. Mm-hmm. These, these things eat fruits and insects and seeds, which you don't get in grass. So, you know, if you don't own a forest, that's fine.
5: And I'm, i I'm a huge advocate of that. I try to be on the show. And people again, we always get this thing where there are people who will critique when we talk about some of these small-scale solutions. It's like, oh, you know, turning your turning your lawn into a a permaculture garden with local species isn't going to like produce enough food to to feed your family. It's like, no, it's not about that. If you could get a couple of thousand people to do it and they convince another couple and like so on and so on and so on, then suddenly if you're increasing significantly the amount of carbon sequestered by that lawn, and you're also making a better habitat for birds and whatnot, that, that scales. That is a thing that scales. If we got a significant number of people with lawns to replace them with something like we were talking about, fuck it, kill, kill that grass. That almost certainly isn't fucking native to your area, plant stuff that is, and, and, and try to reintegrate at least your lawn back into the local ecology. If you got a million Americans to do a version of that, you, you, that's not an insignificant thing. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it is something there's, that you can do.
9: The, in a lot of states, there's programs to support it. The, in my state, there's a program specifically for like changing lawns over. Mm-hmm. And that program is backed up. They are out of money until 2024. They spent it all already. Oh. There's definitely interest there. Um, Again, the give them an is, F-35.
5: Let yeah. them sell it to whoever. Whoever! Anyone gets it if they want it.
9: It just goes up on Craigslist. All right. Yeah, you know, put it on Craigslist. Ca- cash. Yeah, give it to the highest bidder. Yeah. Um, the other thing you can do is go outside, like support your local land management agency. Most of these, like Forest Service and Park Service, they depend on money spent by users. So mm-hmm. go spend money at the forest. The other mm-hmm. thing people can do: wash you your have fucking to boots first, though. Oh yeah, definitely that. And don't don't bring shit in.
5: Yeah. Don't
9: don't bring your like weird thing in, like your weird plant, because you don't want to kill it. Kill yeah,
5: it. your entirely seed based diet.
9: <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you don't if you hunt great that supports conservation if you don't want to hunt you can still buy duck stamps and these other things that support wildlife management in the us wildlife is is funded by the users so there's people who buy guns and ammo and you buy archer equipment and who buy hunting licenses so if you want to support wildlife the best thing you can do is buy a hunting license even if you don't hunt mm. that's it's kind of counterintuitive but it's yeah. the core of the north American model of wildlife management yeah yeah,
5: that's a really good point. And it is one of the, it's also one of those areas when we talk about ways in which theoretically there's room to build re- inroads between left and right in this country, conservation and hunting should be one, right? And there are hunters okay. on the right who are actually talking a pretty good, like reasonably about conservation. Like it is an area of shared interest. Everybody likes wild places, so to speak, quote unquote, while we just talked about how None of them are actually wild. They've all existed with human beings for forever. But like,
6: yeah. We like we like the outdoors. If yes, the outdoors.
9: It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and what I, you know, people ask me like, so I hunt. I have my crossbows right over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, oh sweet. Hunt, crossbow. Get a crossbow. Yeah. Hold on one second.
5: Yeah. You don't have to get a gun.
6: I have been wanting to get crossbow pilled for a while now.
5: Oh, yeah. I wouldn't mind getting crossbow pilled myself. Yeah. Get a shoulder nice. holster for a crossbow. There we go.
9: Oh yeah, that's great. Oh, that's dope. Crossbow, yeah. Yeah. No, this is not a super expensive one, but it's pretty much a rifle.
5: Yeah, Uh, I mean, ballistically at the ranges you use them, there's not any meaningful difference, really.
9: Yeah, and if you're a person who you know doesn't like guns and doesn't trust yourself around them, Mm -hmm. uh, they're very safe. Mm -hmm. So yeah, get get you one of those if you want. It's a fun time. Crossbow. I also like it a lot more than my uh, my guns. Cause it doesn't yeah. recoil, but that's enough about that.
5: Well, that's great. Um, is there anything else you wanted to get into Calvin before we kind of roll out today?
9: Uh, you touched on forest carbon stuff. That's a whole man. Yeah. I a bunch of stuff on that. That's a whole other world. That's, yeah, that's I, I am interested in talking
5: Easy. more about that, but perhaps we should do a, have a, a d- dedicate an entire thing. I mean, we should definitely dedicate an entire thing to that. It's an incredibly important subject. Yeah, Um, And I think there's a lot to say about how different um, indigenous groups have been like up up in the northwest in particular. We have a lot of um, kind of tribal efforts at at stuff like not just with the with the forest, but also with like the coastline and whatnot and rebuilding certain populations along the coast.
9: In the Midwest, Um, Monomi does a great job with forest management. I am actually doing a a webinar thing about one of our forest pests and we're having them come talk about their management. Well, we invited them. I'm not actually sure if they're going to do it yet. But the practice we use is based on what they use out there. So. Yeah, it's it's really cool what various First Nations do. Super mm-hmm.
5: great. Yeah,
9: I just want to plug trees. Yeah, trees
5: neat. Learn your They're trees. they fucking dope. My favorite type of tree, probably the redwood. Used to live in Arcata, go running in them every day. Um, I know that's kind of a cliche answer. What's your what's your favorite tree?
9: Uh, this is one behind me here. No one can see my background. Uh, it's mm-hmm. white oak. You can't make Ooh, bourbon yeah. without white oak. So yeah, yeah. White that oak. is an important also, tree. Forest products are like one of the only things that supports supports forest management. So, and it supports forest. So, you don't be afraid to use, you know, sustainably managed wood and wood products.
5: Mm-hmm. Find a it's good a bourbon company but it's capitalism. and drink a shitload of bourbon. Always a good call. Really. Um, all right. Well, Calvin Norman, any uh, any less
9: pluggable to plug? Um, plants. Uh, if yeah. you want to learn plants, that's great. You want to learn about what's going on, your native, you know, your areas around you. There's lots of groups that do that. Your local extension service helps you out with all that. Most of their stuff's free. So plug that. Yeah, go outside and plug that. I don't do Twitter. Good. Yeah.
5: All right. Well, uh, go outside. Hug a tree. Calvin, Norman, thank you again so much for coming on. Um, If you want to see Calvin's original thread, just type in the woods are bad uh, and It Could Happen Here Reddit or just go to the It Could Happen Here Reddit and scroll down a bit. You'll find it. Um, That's going to do it for us today. Uh, Until tomorrow, go out into the woods. Go out into the woods. Wash your fucking boots first.
1: more More info now.
5: It Could Happen Here is the podcast you're listening to with your ears or perhaps other parts of your body if you have, I don't know, some bizarre form of synesthesia that causes you to taste sound. Um, Maybe you're tasting us right now, in which case um, I'm going to open up the flavor bouquet by introducing my co-host Garrison um, and our guest for today. Why don't you take over now, Garrison? I've done my job. Great. That sounds lovely.
6: Yeah, hey, Garrison here. It could happen here is the podcast. Uh we have a special guest today, uh,
10: journalist and researcher W. F. Thomas. Hello. Hello, it's so good to be here on Behind the Woman's Revolution, the Police Insurrection Daily. Mm-hmm. Thank uh, thank it's you.
5: Lovely to have you. Um a lot of people say Garrison's voice tastes like sorbet, by the way. It's a comment we get a lot. Yeah, but a, a lot of times a lot
6: a lot of those DMs. Um mm-hmm. You should probably stop that. Um. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be talking about something I've wanted to actually bring up myself for a while now, but I just have not put the work in. And now, luckily, someone else did the actual work, so we now we could just talk about it. Uh, we're talking <laughs> about something called a disclosed TV, um, which is a broad range of things. It's not it's, it's not just one thing. Uh, and I guess I'll I'll hand it over to the person who did the actual work in terms of like. How how would you describe what Disclosed TV is? But Bef- like be- before we get into like the journey of the platform and thing, like what like what is it?
10: Yeah. Um let me start this off by saying I've already, before the publication of the article, been publicly threatened uh vaguely with legal action from Disclosed TV. So uh, that will be <laughs> largely informing what I say today, but we do have right. a lot of receipts. Um and right we have now, very
5: scary lawyers here, so I, I'm 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 excited. Whatever happens,
10: <laughs> so feel free to say whatever you want to say. But um, <laughs> Disclosed TV markets itself uh, and presents itself as a news aggregator um, operating Twitter, um, Telegram, Gab, Getter. They have a Facebook as well, uh, as well as a main site where they host what one could describe as articles as well
6: yeah and i think disclosed tv for our purposes d- despite like th- they have a very large facebook presence um mm-hmm. but the way that we usually interact with them specifically like me and robert and then other people who are like journalists or just anti-fascist researchers usually we interact with disclosed tv on telegram or through twitter um twitter through like it's how they like break a lot of current events in like a where like you know a lot of like political figures talk about them is is twitter um and then telegram is where they really disseminate these out into more obscure groups maybe they change their wording because they know the audience is a little bit different and they've been a vector of information for a while really really with the 2020 protests they kind of
2: oh, picked God. up it a lot of over there, like there twitter, was yeah
6: they, they 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 were everywhere in terms of like saying specific things, not doing sourcing, um, and just having like basically they are a place where they kind of create what the they, they try to create what the news is because of how isolated they are from the sources that they actually pull info from, and they're very they're very interested in kind of crafting their own version of events, um, which appeals to people. Across the spectrum, like they, they, they don't just market towards the, the far right wing. Sometimes they frame things to kind of attract a, a variety of people on like the under like the extremist banner, let's say. Um, so, you know, you, you don't just see them in far right circles. You see disclosed pop up in a lot of places because of the way they frame news and breaking events. Um, but they didn't always start out like this. This isn't what they always were. They weren't always this kind of content aggregator that creates their version of news um and uh Thomas did more research into what they were before, which I I actually had not done that research yet. Um, so yeah, let's uh let's talk about that a little bit.
10: Yeah, so I'm gonna start off with talking about how I first heard about disclose. Um, so I was living in Germany when the pandemic hit. Um, and got COVID first wave in Germany in the middle <sighs> of March. Um, luckily I was totally asymptomatic. Um, but I was kind of stranded. In Germany for a couple weeks, um, and had to isolate in a vacation rental. Uh, and the Bavarian man who owned it just kept coming and talking to me. And I would tell him, "Hey, it's probably not the best idea for you to be coming by and chatting with me all the time." And you know, he got into talking, and we're talking in German. He got we got into talking about you know the pandemic, what he thought about it, and he started talking about how he thought, "Oh, the government's making this seem way worse than it is," you know the deep state if you know anything about that and he and he said Oof. deep state in english um and i was familiar with german far eight currents uh, at that time um but i had never encountered a pilled german dude uh and that's when i realized this is going to be a fucking problem yeah um yeah and and it lo and behold it has continued to be a problem. So uh, as I got back to the U.S. and and the other thing when I was in Germany is the first time I encountered I encountered Telegram um, when uh, a German I knew said, uh, "Hey, I I just don't trust WhatsApp because it's owned by Facebook. Why don't you download Telegram in 2019? I think um, and and it was pretty innocuous to me at the time. I didn't realize this would become a problem. Yeah, um, yeah. Fast forward. Um, I was Working on my master's project, which um, I can talk about more later on because it's kind of besides the point, um, if you all want to hear about it. But uh, looking at Telegram as the cultic milieu, um, mm-hmm. using Colin Campbell's framework of the cultic milieu, um, to understand specifically how QAnon spread in Germany uh, and how QAnon interacted with these native underlying conspiracy narratives within Germany and... Um, because Telegram is already massively popular in Germany. Yeah. Um, before, after J6, I think of the band wave came down and there was much more migration to the platform. So, you know, I did the social network analysis looking at the conspir- German conspiracy scene on Telegram. And one of the biggest nodes that came up and I was looking at number of times shared into other groups or channels uh, was Disclosed TV. Um, and that's the first time I came into it. I, I looked through it and realized, okay, they... There is an editorial stance within this, um, and that editorial stance largely attracts conspiracists and far-right extremists uh, to this coverage and to, you know, this is widely shared among conspiracists and far-right extremists. Yeah. Um, Fast forward, um, I'm on Twitter as many of us are, unfortunately, um, and I saw Disclosed TV just popping up everywhere, um, even from people who, who I would think should know better. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. Who, who are mm-hmm. you know big extremism researchers and journalists um, shared it. I remember there one specific one that really came across my feed. Um, Disclose had had taken a video from like the Blaze Glenn Beck's whatever the fuck Empire Glenn whatever, Beck whatever. Is doing yeah, yeah. Um, about the firefighters who were quitting over vaccine mandate or something and had all of their boots or whatever, and I saw. Lots of people sharing that as well. Um, And eventually I got tired of saying, hey, this shit is suspect, don't share it. Um, And decided to (laughs) write an article about it so I could just send my article to people. And uh, it's really interesting what I found. Um, Disclosed TV started off um, in the mid-2000s as just this forum for UFOs, paranormal stuff, cryptids, Bigfoot sightings and existed in largely the same format uh, until 2021. Um, there were some shifts in, in the way the site presented itself. Um, it was it started off as a member login where members could write articles that, that were largely long-form forum posts and then have people comment on them and reply. Um, and at one point, Disclose made the jump to functioning as a news aggregator, while including an editorial spin on that, yes. uh, and including some of their own articles. Do you want me to get more into that now?
2: Mm-hmm.
10: Yeah, because yeah, because like the the
6: sh- the shift was was it wasn't like immediate as well, right? Like they were starting to kind of present themselves in more of a news gathering way, you know, around the late twenty teens. Of course, during twenty twenty, this became a big thing in terms of their social media presence. Um, They were trying to present themselves as like a news aggregator, right? Uh, But they still operated that. But they still operated the forum on their site throughout most of that time, and it's only until recently where they shut that forum down, um, which was you know full of full of all kinds of conspiratorial nonsense that's very easy to see past for most people.
10: Um, Secret, you know, know, secret Arctic shit, which is yeah, yeah. Flag. It's always that's usually a red flag. (laughs) Yeah, even getting to get stuff like. Watch this SJW get wrecked, which which is not a quotation, but just that kind of yeah. vibe, that style
6: of content. Yeah, going from the forum operating then with the you know their social media accounts to the shift to this more of like presenting as a news pub site. Talk about that and the potential effects that we see this having on both like the social media sites and just the overall trend of news aggregation in general. I guess.
10: Yeah. So. The first big shift that I found um, was the creation of their Telegram channel, which was in January of 2021, actually. So this is okay, relatively more recent, a recent than yeah shift that happened. Um, and they operated their Telegram as a um, as more in this traditional news aggregator sense, and so that's how they really blew up on Telegram. At some point, they deleted all of their old tweets um, and started operating their Twitter in a similar manner. It was after they created this Telegram channel. Um, In September, actually overnight on September 20th of 2021, they completely rebranded the site. They took out all the user forums. Um, They included backdated articles to a year prior. Um, And looking, looking through archives of it, there was a note saying something along the lines of, we have found so much growth on our social media. Our growing Telegram channel, our growing Twitter account, um, and something to the effect of we we are changing our strategy and going about this a different way. Um, and you can, if you were into the forum, you can join our Discord, um, which is now yeah. defunct. And I'll get I'll get into that later. Um, and Yeah, looking. It was really interesting too because looking at these backdated articles, um, they included very obviously plagiarized content. Um, They had, I believe, it's it's all in the article, but they had four journalists' um, names attached with the article using um, AI-generated images for their pictures. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, (laughs) and as. The especially the articles that they themselves published um, were very focused on UFOs, paranormal, paranormal phenomenon, um, as well as content that could cause skepticism within an audience um, about vaccines and lockdowns. And I do not know the intent of uh, their editorial board, and so I cannot speak on that. But of course, not it generated this effect.
6: Yes, that is, they found a way of creating content which develops a very specific audience, which grew their numbers, which made them, you know, what one could assume would make them want to make more of that content because it makes more numbers and they can um, use that to grow their platform. Um, yeah, specifically leading up, like, after after January 2021, um, ramping up when the vaccines were becoming more and more common in the States and then across the world... Um, they have seen a, a pretty significant growth and have changed their platform accordingly. Exactly.
10: Um, so we began looking into... Who the, who the fuck owns this? What's going on with this? Mm-hmm. Um, like all German companies, um, and it is based in Germany, there's a requirement by law to include an imprint or an impressum that includes uh, an address, um, contact information, for the site um, and the company that, that owns it. Um, a company called Future Bytes operates Disclosed TV, um, which describes itself as a private equity firm and media group. Um, and looking into the ownership behind Future Bytes is a man by the name of Uva Brown, um, who has a pretty interesting backstory. He's hosted, he's, he's made numerous web hosting sites. Um, I believe he, Created some dating sites as well but but my research was not conclusive so that's a maybe Um, but eventually he sold he had his most success when he sold one of his web hosting sites to uh, GoDaddy um, for a lot of money uh, and along the way in his own as he described uh, booked a flight on Virgin to go into space and see for himself if the earth if the earth was flat
5: my Um, god Awesome, cool, Th- that, this is great, thank you, yeah. <laughs>
10: so this this is who we're dealing with. Um, Sweet. And the thing about Disclose being based in Germany um, that, that becomes an issue, um, is that Germany has a very different uh, look at free speech than in the US. Um, for example, even online displaying swastikas um, and denying the Holocaust, is illegal and is a prosecutable crime that can get you jail time. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we explored, uh, as I mostly, and um, there's additional reporting from Ernie Piper, and I'll talk a bit more about that later, uh, explored their Discord and their Telegram, we realized, huh, seems to be a lot of Nazis here. And by which, when I say seems to be a lot of Nazis, I mean people with swastikas in their profile builds, Yeah. Um, with, you know, Names referencing the Holocaust with the whispers parentheses, um, and saying denying that the Holocaust happened, um, and also sharing the neo Nazi, famous neo Nazi, infamous neo Nazi propaganda film, uh, Europa the Last Battle, um, which was shared by prominent QAnon influencer ghost Ezra.
6: Yeah, I know, um, oh man, I this this came up a few days ago, one of the uh. One of the uh, channels that me and someone else have been watching uh, forwarded me it being that 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 film being shared at the it was it was it was at the uh, the free Oregon Telegram channel was uh, sharing links to that and I I, I wonder yeah. I I, w- I would like to track back where that link came from um, yeah not not great seeing that uh, film circulate more and more especially among like you know the the free Oregon Telegram channels you know like anti mask anti vax anti-lockdown channel um, and seeing the proliferation of that type of content. Yeah. So
10: in preparing for this article, um, with the help of of the Logically editorial team, uh, I'm a freelancer. Um, Their current head of content, Ernie Piper, um, sent an email basically asking, hey, what's going on? Y'all seem to have a Nazi problem. That's kind of borderline illegal in Germany. Um. To which, for a while, this for for about twenty four hours, this close just went totally quiet and didn't post, um, and then came out with a post specifically targeting Ernie, um, by name and with a picture of him and linking to some of his old reporting work, uh, as well, um, saying yes, Uva Brown owns this. He got his money from GoDaddy. You know we value free speech and and we condemn hatred, and whatnot, and and saying oh our Telegram we have a tele- there's a Telegram group, but we have these rules in it. And uh, okay, yeah, we we had to shut down the Discord that got a little bit out of hand. We admit that you know they they had people denying the Holocaust with swastika icons in their Discord that they didn't seem to care too much about until someone pointed it out. Um, and you know there's there. Was additionally very explicit neo-Nazi content uh, in their Telegram channel as well, with the excuse, "Oh well, we're a growing, growing platform. Uh, we we can't moderate everything." As well, they have uh, they just crossed four hundred thousand in their Telegram channel, and I think about thirty thousand in their Telegram group, um, which is f- frankly bullshit. Yeah, um, that is. If if my personal opinion is that if you cannot. Don't have the resources to moderate the space. You probably shouldn't. Then you shouldn't have the space. Yeah, the space. Um, And and additionally confirming. Oh, okay. We we when we made our new version of the site, yes, we backdated some articles from previous user generated content that we, you know, didn't vet properly. We're trying to fix that now. Uh, They removed some of those articles. um, And that yeah, we none of the people who who are the authors of our articles are real people and they're all pen names. Um, you know, they, they also have or at least had a tab on their website that said write for us and and looking for people to send them things and saying, you know, we, we will disclose your bio and link to all your social media if you write a story for us. And there, there was zero of that happening as well.
6: So do you think that I, I know like on the rules for their telegram, they have the no-Nazi-stuff rule, Um, do you think they're actually trying to discourage that because they're scared of legal stuff, or is that just presenterary, and they, I guess, you know, this is just going into speculation, so I think this might be more a question for even Robert. Um, In terms of, yeah, like, is the anti-Nazi stuff presenterary, because it does seem to be a lot of their user base is fostering that type of thing, or is, you know, being moved over from other similar channels, um... Because, yeah, like, a lot of, like, the amount that we see disclose, like, you know, intercept with channels like, you know, the Rise Above Movement channel, um, and a whole bunch of, like, eco-fascist channels, and a whole bunch of channels, you know, on a broad, like, a broad range of, like, actual, like, fascist topics, like, people who are, like, into fascist theory, um, is quite high. the Like, the, the amount that disclose shows up. Um, and I don't know, like, I you can look at all their stuff saying, I mean, like, yeah, on, on the, their rule page saying, no, Nazi bullshit. Um, But then if you spend any amount of time looking at at where their posts are forwarded, it's almost primarily people who self-describe themselves as fascists. Um, So, I mean, yeah, it's hard. Or
10: or Donald J. Trump Jr. Who likes. Yes, yes.
6: It it expands out into a lot of, you know, just like, you know, American journalists who study extremism can also share disclosed stuff on Twitter, right? That is part of their thing is making that and you know that that does strengthen them because it gives them that legitimacy so then when people point out that they have a nazi problem like no that's not us that's just some of our users who are trolling or you know whatever whatever bullshit they they, they want to say um so i guess like how i guess the the real way to frame this is like how often have you seen <laughs> nazi stuff associated with the disco with the disclosed tv brand because that's the one thing we actually can measure right we can't measure their intentions but we can measure how often this stuff happens
5: yeah, I mean, that's always, like, the best way to measure that kind of thing, rather than just sort of, like, making the allegation listing, like, we find it in this many channels, we see it shared in these areas, it's being discussed by these people, and, like, it, 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 like that, that's, I think, always kind of how you actually build these these sort of networks, is by looking at, at what is actually spreading where, like, that's, the, it, it is thankfully something that you can measure pretty objectively.
6: And like they are fostering it with the amount of stuff they talk about, like George Soros, and you know the amount of stuff that they like the way they frame breaking news is is has that editorial bent where it's very clear that it's getting pushed in a specific direction. Like there is th- that is that is a thing that you can observe by reading the type of narratives they're
10: weaving via how they report information. Um, yeah, the 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 topics that they choose to cover. Um, are topics that resonate very deeply with conspiracists and with far right extremist communities. Um, If I had to speculate, um, I will say, at least since the article has come out, um, they've done a better job (laughs) of moderating their Telegram channel, at least for now. So, good job, Disclosed TV. No one... (laughs) You can't find links to Europa the Last Battle there anymore. You can still find... You can still find uh, very rampant homophobia slurs um, because, you know, they bl- didn't, they clearly auto blocked some words, but people can shorten them or use different spellings yes. for those yes. words to still be used in the channel. Um, there's still you know, anti Semitic, um, coded anti Semitic references as well, um, responding to something saying, oive. For example, uh, which, yeah, which is something that tends to be used by a lot of neo Nazis and anti Semites.
6: Yeah, I mean, even and if you do any amount of research on Telegram, you will you will find forward link forwarded links to this channel all everywhere. Like if it's it is it is so massive the footprint that they have currently in the in like the 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 cycle. Of, sh- of forwarding posts specifically on telegram um and yeah I mean, they're, they're getting a lot of traction on it because they have stuff framed in a way that's really easy for them to have those stuff like line up with the communities that promote those types of worldviews um yeah and promote the you know the the narratives that they want to foster so let's see let's have uh, another quick break and then let's maybe talk about uh, your big master's project, which is really interesting.
10: Um, yeah, can I can I can I do it? Yeah, can I do the? You know, you know what isn't Telegram? Uh, literally I mean, these ads. Unless we get
6: an
5: ad by Telegram, which would we be- we are primarily sponsored by the Durov brothers. Um, but that's for a separate project. Great. My, my favorite ad is the uh, is the one where it's
10: the kid playing and they find a gun. Oh yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite.
5: We're and back. We're, well, we are. Thanks. Great yeah. job. Great work. I hope everybody enjoyed that kid finding a gun again and, and firing, firing it.
2: it. Yeah. So the, there's
5: <laughs> one of my favorite tweets recently was like somebody. It was an, an, somebody like clipped it, a, a screen grab of a news article that was like uh, a toddler has shot someone every day in the United States for the last three years. And somebody quote tweeted and said, somebody fucking stop him. <laughs>
6: It's very good. <laughs> um, so the last thing I want to talk about is just kind of why news aggregators are bad in the first place, and examples of which we've seen the past few years, and how they contribute to disinformation specifically, and how they don't do sourcing for any claims, and they try to make themselves a primary source, even though they're not. Um, and then also, would l- love to talk about um, your uh, very fancy project. So yeah we saw a lot of news aggregators in 2020 that like <laughs> during the protest yeah. specifically that that spawned and killed many a news aggregator account um which did not help things very much um yeah and
10: this is this is an issue that strikes across
6: the political spectrum yes i mean one of the biggest instances of that would be an account called uh Anoncat, right that was the oh, that was what, what i called. was thinking of yeah um <sighs> Who you know marketed themselves towards the left wing, um, and I again I don't know what their intentionality was. They may have had their heart in the right place. I have no idea, um, and I'm not going to speculate on that right now. But the effect that they caused was damaging to how information is disseminated, specifically in high stress events. Um, you know, like for instance, the Rittenhouse shooting. You know, like stuff like that. Uh, like, or the big protests, accounts. the
10: the the demos around that before that. Yeah, that before that. It. Yes yeah like then the
6: in fostering that very fast paced unverified information circulation um that gets you know a lot of retweets it gets it gets a lot of eyeballs on it but it's but it's hard it makes it very hard to backtrack claims because they do not uh want to link to other accounts because they're mostly interested in growing their own account
10: um so and i this, and i will say Dis- disclose has gotten better about linking to the sources even if the title and the tweet don't necessarily match what is in the story they link to. <laughs> yeah. Or at least but someone could take a different interpretation from the two.
6: Yes. So just like, you know, news aggregation and the way it intersects with disinformation and misinformation, not a, just a problem for the far right, not just a problem for the right wing, not just a problem for liberals, not just a problem for leftists. This is the thing that anyone anyone can really grasp onto. Um, and some of it's accidental, some of it's intentional, right? There's some, some people might just do this kind of mindlessly, and some people may, you know, do this aggregation with a very specific intent in mind. So just be very careful whenever you have an account that always leads with all caps, like, BREAKING, like, news. Like, yeah. if, if, if you have an account that always does that, maybe, maybe, maybe don't take that account super seriously all the time. Maybe you should uh, yeah. find other sources of info that don't always start the tweets with BREAKING news in all caps.
10: Or my uh, advice to people, if they do want something like that, Find an actual news source. That, mm-hmm. that, yeah. <laughs> that, there is plenty of valid criticism to be made against, you know, these mainstream media, MSM, centrist stuff from, from you know, even from the left, there's there's criticism. Um, but you have to find some way of, of finding your own meaning and understanding of, of what is going on in the world around you. you know, I, I, I think AP, I th- CNN, Reuters.
6: Yeah, and on that point, I think that is Part of why I think Disclose can succeed and or like what they did can succeed, even like when I see stuff shared on the left, even by like anarchists, because it is a not mainstream media news source, the way they can frame things of sometimes rarely will match up with like an actual anarchist views. And they're like, yeah, I'm going to share it from this thing because it does feel like an underground, you know, source. It, it, it It doesn't it's not you're not sharing a CNN article. So you feel better. Because instead you're sharing something that is not in the mainstream. So like I, I get that I, I get that pull to not something support that is a
10: disingenuous that. reading of a CNN article instead.
6: Yeah, but instead you're you' know it's not actually better. It's just marketing. They're, they're just tricking you via aesthetics and branding. and that's all that it is, right? So maybe you should s- learn learn to see past the marketing and branding of those types of things and look at the actual content of what's being shared what is the university project thing that uh, has been taking up a lot of your time
10: yeah and um, so i got back in the us and i got interested um, especially in looking at the spread of qAnon in germany and that you know led me down this research path um, and brought me especially to telegram um again before it was largely used in in right wing circles in the us while the the nazis have have Pretty regularly in the US, but on Telegram as well. Um, but this led me to look at this and and um, especially to to look at Telegram in the context of, uh, as I mentioned, Colin Campbell's concept of the cultic milieu, um, which I don't know if y'all have talked about that on this. Before, we have on but behind is, is the generally... bastards
5: a couple of times.
10: Okay, but yeah. To to give a quick summary is is the concept that. There is the space. And, and when Colin Campbell wrote that, it was in, I believe, the 70s. So it was a, a physical space where people go to find these rejected narratives, you know, reject the idea of rejected knowledge. Um, and they go to seek this kind of knowledge and, and, and these things. Um, so he's talking about things like UFO conferences or or meetups uh, or or alternative bookstores.
6: Um, or perhaps maybe signing up at an institute to get a degree in metaphysics.
10: <laughs> yeah. as <laughs> <Garrison>. <laughs> What a weirdly specific <laughs> example, Garrison.
5: <laughs> what
6: a, yeah, sorry, I just read the random thought. Uh, yeah, anyway.
5: How's that going, by the way, Garrison?
10: It's going good. <laughs> good. Yeah, and and what you find is, is people can very easily move between ideologies. Um, and as they move between ideologies concepts specific schools they cross-pollinate these schools um and this is how you get these kind of highly syncretic movements like QAnon um like the modern conspiracy movement um which is incredibly syncretic and um some of the other <laughs> really bad ones that are out there as well um yeah. that combine these different views um specifically thing- when you
6: start when you start combining this type of like cultural mysticism with politics Often you can have very volatile results.
5: Yes, exactly. Um, can, can you think of any examples? <laughs>
6: <laughs> i I mean, in some ways, the modern eco-fascist movement is built on a lot mm-hmm. of this type of stuff. So that yeah, that, would I mean, never, easiest, uh, that would be uh, the easiest. That uh, would be
5: the easiest one. The the I think the the syncretism of because I think a lot of people have been surprised to see like you know kind of like natural medicine and and, and whatnot uh, subcultures and a, like alien subcultures kind of colliding with. QAnon and and these like uh, more like far right neo-Nazi type groups and the fact that there are all of these things that were associated for years kind of more with the left have been increasingly um pulled into this this sort of um weather system of conspiratorial thinking has been surprising to a lot of people who don't understand this stuff but it makes total sense if you if you have been paying attention to the scholarship on on what is actually like how Cult sort of form. Like it's, 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 um it's like a weather pattern that's been building for quite a while. There's a gravity to it that sucks um, everything in together and it all kind of, it's, as you said, syncretic. Um, it's yeah, interesting because.
10: Not to get into horseshoe theory, but this is even how you get some of that crossover, right?
2: Yes. Because...
6: Yeah, that was that was that was what I was just going to mention. Is that even a lot of like the left wing authors or you know post left wing authors who got into this like cultural mysticism? Um, you see their texts now getting shared by like fa- like open fascists, even though these well, and, authors and, and... were anti fascist. Um, th- they are able to still pick and choose what parts they're writing to appropriate because some of it can kind of synchronize, um, and, and despite them coming at it from for... opposite ends.
5: A very long time. Like, if you, we've, we talked about in our Gabriel D'Annunzio episodes, Fume, which was this kind of like where a, a large chunk of like the, the fascist intellectual movement got started, um, in the post World War One period. But also, there were like a ton of anarchists and a lot of like yeah. left wing, um, like thought leaders and whatnot were kind of all, it was again, kind of, there was, there was this kind of like gravity center that pulled everything in and it all started churning together. And, um, yeah, we're 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 seeing that happen now, um, and yeah, it yeah. sucks.
10: And, and that's, <laughs> it's that's,
5: it's that's, great. Yeah, to, to jump back to Campbell,
10: that's one of those examples of those physical spaces that Colin uh, that Colin yeah. Campbell was talking about, right? Um, mm-hmm. Where it's it's any place that ideas that are rejected by you know the orthodox kind of the establishment, there is overlap. There is not necessarily ideological overlap, but there is an interplay between them as people move between them and as these ideas come into collision with one another um and with the internet right whole right. different fucking ball game um yeah because that space
5: is now everywhere yeah it's, exactly yeah.
10: and and telegram specifically has these specific affordances that make it ideal for having this soup of bullshit on it as well um it's it's additionally one of and this may be changing. There's a lot of discussion going on about this, especially within the German government, who who could actually, they already have a law that they could use to say, hey, you can't have Nazis on, you can't have this Nazi shit in Telegram. Um, but Telegram is one of these last places where where things are largely allowed to spread without any kind of interruption, right? Um, which I do think, you know, you look at Telegram is used in, in um, the Hong Kong uprising as well.
5: It was used for. It, it was used in the George Floyd uprising. Yeah, the George year, Floyd you know? yeah.
10: uprising as well. Um, and it's these same things well, that attract different year, but, yeah. people to it. Time is fake. Um, yeah. Abolish linear time. Um, but shoot you know, your clock. Shoot the fucking clock! But, but <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, Zerzan. Let's get back to the topic. <laughs> yeah, but, but 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 jumping back into this, Telegram markets itself is this very secure platform. Uh, it's probably not right it, it does
5: have it's certainly not no yeah, absolutely not <laughs> it
10: it does have it does have encrypted chats but that's only for one to one messaging um between people and even then you need to go and make sure that security settings are right and and again i I don't fully trust that
5: um yeah but it, I don't it, fully true i mean signal is about we, as good as it we, gets and I don't we fully barely trust
6: signal, trust signal. yeah yeah.
5: <laughs> yeah exactly i trust conversations when everyone has put their phone inside a faraday bag in a house
10: and then we walk two miles <laughs> into the woods
5: we walked two miles into the woods <laughs> then you can have a conversation
10: yeah um but telegram markets itself is this very secure app right um which is which is largely marketing uh, you know it's yeah. it's appeal is that it's I not mean, whatsapp it's not
5: owned by facebook it is probably worth acknowledging that for because it's also very popular with a lot of people in um you know parts of the global south and countries yes. with authoritarian governments and it is has been used for a lot of organizing it can be more secure and also more secure but also more sec- ex- uh, accessible, accessible um yep. than what than any other tool people have access to i mean in syria it's like it's ex- again extremely common for like neighbor like neighborhoods and towns will have like telegram groups for this little village where they a lot of stuff gets done over Telegram and places like yeah.
10: that. Yeah, and Telegram sits in this interesting space between social media. Um, it's not a full-on social media site, but it's also not just
5: a messaging app. Um, yeah. Tele- Telegram it, is it's a kind of hard to categorize. It is an interesting sort of like in-between type thing.
10: Yeah, because you can have essentially unlimited, I think the number is in the hundreds of thousands for yeah. how many people can join a group message um, on Telegram. And you also have these one-way messaging thing called channels where where one person or group of people can send out messages that appear alongside everyone else's message feed as well um and that can you can also enable comments on that um which i'll get into in a second um but but it's a great way to share information as well and what i was specifically looking at is the forwarding of messages because you you can forward a message from this one channel into whatever group chat you're in and it links back to that channel and i was interested in seeing how far you know what connections can we make from this what kind of zigzagging can we find um and the answer is fucking a lot um where where someone may may use telegram for for example a neighborhood group message right and then someone forwards a message a message for this channel um or for this other group message um where they talk about oh here's kind of health practices to use and then you get into the pseudoscience of things crossing into further messages from what's forwarded forward groups and channels from what's forwarded into that group and channel and so on so on until you, you get to the neo-nazis eventually um, and it's also it is it is a concerted effort on the part of people pushing their ideology um, who will go in the comments of, of these giant channels and say hey check out my channel um, what's not a real one you know Aryan cooking, which is probably a channel, but probably is. Yeah, great check, job. Check, sorry, but but <laughs> check out, check out, yes. check out, check out this or whatever, and and especially when QAnon moved on, a lot of t- promoters moved God, on, like, it was program. awful. Um, mm-hmm. there there was organized groups of of internet neo Nazis going on and trying to pill boomers into neo Nazism. Yeah, and there Did still they, are.
6: Because of the because of the mesh like network of Telegram, they try to make those meshes connect via dissemination. Right? You can you know people who are dedicated to these more esoteric groups can join more regular like manga groups or QAnon groups and start slowly bringing links to them. Start doing links and forwarding to the more extreme channels, um, and eventually, yeah, that does that does work. It can be a slow, careful process, um, or it can be very fast and uh, like bombastic. And it'll depending on the person one of them will latch on to one one will latch on to the other
10: yeah and and before the article came out um what i did see was the specific thing of of accounts that i would associate or or believe to be neo nazi um encouraging people to join their groups and channels um in the in the telegram group message as well and i cannot speak to what that looks like right now after the article has come out
6: Legal yeah. Purposes. And I've been trying to take a break from Telegram for my day to day life um, and focus on reading actual books. So but yeah, that is yeah, something I can always
5: is... tell when one of us has been spending time on Telegram because <laughs> the, the the things we consider jokes get much, much worse. worse. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you remember when I found that playlist of Blink One Eighty Two d- Nazi covers? Not Nazi covers? It was what? There was like a hundred of them.
6: Blink fourteen eighty eight or some bullshit.
5: Fourteen. God oh, damn it!
6: <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
5: Neo Nazis.
6: Sp- you always fi- you can you can find the most fucked up stuff. Uh, don't don't mm-hmm. do it. Don't don't scroll on Telegram. Absolutely
5: do not y- do. You're it. not
6: gonna get. It, this isn't like coveting the sacred. You don't knowledge need to be anything. on Twitter, let it's alone fucking Telegram. Yeah, like it's, it's not even it's, it's not worth it. Like there's there's no s- sacred knowledge like knowledge that we're hiding. It's just yeah. It's, it's just so kinda it just kind of sucks. Like it just like it just makes sucks. You feel bad.
5: Yeah, yeah, it just makes you feel worse about life and yourself and the people around you.
6: So the yep. scope for your master's project, what is kind of the what's the what's the deal
10: with like tying these things together? I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, so using this social network analysis to argue that, that Telegram does function as this cultic milieu, um, which, yeah, I have seems, I have my masters, to be, which seems is, to be the go. case. Yeah, um, you know, and the question gets into what is the responsibility of the platform, right? Um, because I fully believe there should be something, at least similar to this it, it it has been used for you know purposes along yes. with yeah. my politics in which i would call good uh and needed um however they've also allowed all this fucking awful ecosystem to spread it's it's interesting to see when telegram has had to step in and they you know they have pulled down some isis accounts and channels um and and yeah. they have pulled Although, down
5: <laughs> when i was in um al Hol, which is the the camp where all the ISIS prisoners were in Syria, like, while Jake and I were in the camp, we could see on Telegram, like, ISIS supporters in al Hol talking about stabbing guards, like, in real time. It was not uh, particularly... Uh, it, it, they, they've done, like, a lot... There's less of it than there used to be, but it is still not hard to find ISIS on Telegram.
10: Yeah, and they, they've taken down a few amount of neo-Nazi channels. Um, it's, it's funny, because... Oh god, maybe cut this. But <laughs> they've taken on some of the neonazi channels when they've shared ISIS shit, for example. Yeah, yeah, I think I've,
6: we're we've we're familiar with that line of thing. That's something we've mentioned before.
10: Okay, cool. There has been pressure from from the Play Store and Google as well, or the Play Store from Google and and the App Store and App Store, um, yeah, Apple's App Store from Apple to say we we aren't going to carry the app if you don't. Do just a tiny bit better, essentially. Um, which 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 also it exists as, as a web client, um, both as a, as a web client and as a desktop app as well. Um, but that would, you know, limit some of it. Um, so so this has become largely discussed uh, in the germ in the German parliament because there's a new um, there's a new government in Germany and and there is this history of. Germany kind of is the lead for doing things about this digital content, uh, especially within the EU. And and as I mentioned, there's already a law called the Democratic Enforcement Act that requires platforms to take down content in Germany um, that could be implemented on Telegram as well. There's already a law.
6: Yeah, I mean, this is... Th- like The thing why, you know, what I watch happen lots is, you know these channels will get shut down and they'll make a new one and they'll shut down that one and make a new one. Right. It's this, you you see this with like discord servers, telegram channels. It is kind of this endless cycle. Um, and seeking an end to the cycle is always not as easy as what one would hope. Um, because of the cyclical nature of building these platforms and connections and how the people who run these, you know, intersect and specifically with, with telegram, it's really easy because if if the channel gets shut down, you're still part of twelve other channels, and odds are one of those channels is going to forward you the link to the new channel that was that was lost. Um, yeah, and this is a so, thing you
10: see where they send lists of channels. Uh, yeah. within within ex- extremist groups and channels, they will send out lists of here's other groups and channels to check out as well.
6: Yeah, but I mean, I would. So that's something that's you know hard for regular people to actually do, but something I think that people who do not own these platforms nor are lawmakers can't think about is is particularly the 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 cultic milieu that does, you know, go past regular left right divisions in terms of politics and how, you know, symbol like symbology, um, and stuff that was, you know, initially, you know, perhaps more anarchist or, or left wing is is being used by people on the right. And some people are really confused by that. And there is ways to there is ways to understand it. Like it is it is i I am very frustrated when I look at you know people online who don't understand why nazis can use ted k and right it's like yeah, yeah. like it's, yeah. It's, not, it's it's not it's not it's not not what it's not not really about what ted k actually wrote it's more the, the symbolic meme of ted k and trying to you know get that get that line of thinking across is not the easiest thing because sometimes it'll go in the other direction and be like oh ted k is a nazi which isn't accurate either like that's that's no. not also the most accurate thing to say so it's it's the cultic milieu framework of being yeah sometimes these symbols can cross over from one thing to another and sometimes the action can be the same you know both anarchists and like insurrectionary fascists both want to like attack like industrialization and attack points of industry right but maybe their ideologies are slightly different sometimes in specific ways so it's always a, a tricky thing to kind of navigate um so i think in terms of you know people should think about what symbols they promote uh, like publicly and stuff, is a good thing. And think about news aggregation and how to maybe not not just share something because it's countercultural. Try to figure out what other what other types of narratives this source is yeah. spreading. Um, Follow yeah, real and, and, journalists.
10: Support the work of real journalists because yeah. there's a bunch of kick-ass people out there um, who are doing awesome research and work.
6: So. I think that kind of wraps up the scope of what I want to talk about around Disclose specifically. Because, I mean, Disclose is a thing, but it's also, like, it's good as just, like, an example to, like, this over like this like broader, f- like, phenomenon, I think. Because, um, like, Disclose won't be here forever, hopefully. <laughs> like, you know, hopefully in a few years it's something that we can just, like, look back on and laugh about. Um, but it's, you know, it's still a good signifier for a phenomenon that happens. And the phenomenon, even, even if Disclose goes away, the phenomenon's still going to stay. Um, yeah. And it's important to point it out when you see whatever the next version of this
10: is. So, yeah, and I'll, I'll also say that the cultic milieu isn't necessarily a bad thing, right? This is, you know, where, where stuff that is rejected by the Orthodox goes. And, you know, completely eliminating, right, any kind of cultic milieu just means everything is exactly the fucking same and falls in line with Orthodox yeah. belief, which I strongly disagree with as well. Mm-hmm.
6: No, there's, there is a way to be countercultural without being a conspiratorial fascist. (laughs) I would say most it takes vigilance
10: and responsibility in what you were consuming and sharing.
6: Yes, and I would say like most people who are actually counterculture are yeah, like actual punk is 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 that. You know, once you're enforcing traditional hierarchical viewpoints, that that ain't punk. That is uh, that's playing into what the status quo was. That isn't that isn't revolutionary. (laughs) That I feel like the living
10: uh, members of the Sex cool. Pistols would ag- disagree with you. Aren't they all? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep.
5: But I think we can all agree that having living members of the Sex Pistols was a mistake.
6: And I would, I prefer uh, Lana Wachowski's version of punk to theirs anyway. So, hey, who cares? Um, so thank you for your work, Thomas. Um, I would recommend people uh, read your article, um, which you can do by Googling uh, Disclosed TV now it will be, for me, it's the second result that pops up. So that's cool.
10: Um, Send it but- <laughs> to all your friends and mutuals who are sharing Disclosed TV. Um, mm-hmm. You can find it on logically.ai is the website, and the full title of the article is Disclosed TV Conspiracy Forum turned Disinformation Factory. Thank you. Thank you for
6: that. Um, do you want to direct people to your Twitter account, or do you want to be a ghost that fades away in their memory?
10: Uh, <laughs> just don't be fucking weird. You can find me on Twitter at uh, w underscore. F be
5: fucking weird. Do underscore it. Underscore
10: Thomas. God fucking damn it. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Be um, weird. Be weird. All right. I guess I'm keeping my account locked for <laughs> a mm-hmm. few more weeks. Um Yeah, I also want to shout out um some of the local mutual aid or one of the local mutual aid groups uh in the town where I live or in the area where I live is uh, the Atlanta Justice Alliance. Their cash app is cash symbol ATL Mutual Fund, or their Venmo is ATL Mutual Fund. They're helping out um they, they've done uh, weekly um, weekly provided food and uh, resources for people, unhoused people living in downtown Atlanta um, and are a great group. Uh, and then also people want to give more money to things. Shout out Atlanta Solidarity Fund who have helped many of my friends get out of jail after they were arrested at protests. Um, Hope. And also you can hire me. If- yes. <laughs> if you
6: uh- – Researchers, yes, you can. You can. You can hire Thomas if you want. Uh, I mean, I've, 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 I've known Thomas for a bit. Um, they do uh, li- really good work. Um, yeah, they're very, they're very, they're very, in my experience, they're a very careful researcher. They mm-hmm. will not say things without thinking about them a lot first, which is always great in a researcher. <laughs> so, <laughs> or at least not publicly. <laughs> send yes. them money
5: and off-putting comments, an even mix of money and really off-putting. Twitter comments oh and one I more g-
10: shout out to my one more shout out to my friends at terrorism bad pod which you should listen to and is on Twitter at terrorism bad pod
6: well that does it for us today if you for some reason are on social media and you want to follow us you can follow us at cool zone media and um, or absolutely here, don't do that. or happen here pod um, you can follow Robert Evans at I write okay send him weird Definitely messages
5: do not do that
6: and you can send me weird messages at Hungry <laughs> <bow tie>. mm-hmm. <laughs>
5: all right send garrison pictures of salads that you make and and keep keep doing that for like five or six years to the point that it, it actually becomes funny because it's going to take a while
6: i'm just happy that people have stopped sending me eel porn so that's honestly <laughs> that's a win, that's a win. <laughs>
5: that one's on you though yeah, I all right remember distinctly... <laughs> goodbye everybody <laughs> Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe.
1: It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. More info now.